Welcome back to another episode of Script V Manuscript, the podcast where we talk movies, we talk books, and we talk about storytelling in general. Uh, today we've got a real treat for you. Um, if you tuned in last time, you know what our subject is for the day, but before we get into that, let me introduce myself. I am one of your co-hosts, Terry. I'm here with my other co-host, Joe, <laughs> and very, very sorry that it's not Lydia, who did a fantastic job filling yes. in on our mini-episode, and I'm sure our, our uh, listeners are going to be disappointed to hear the harsh and guttural tones of Joe, <laughs> as opposed to the dulcet tones of the wonderful Lydia. She did a great job. Yes, that was a lot of fun, and we we got, we should have waited on that, because we, we had a chance on Sunday, This today is Monday, Tuesday, today is Tuesday. Yes. We had a chance Sunday to go see a uh, local theater production oh. of Peter Pan Jr. So this was all, I think the oldest kid in it was maybe 16. Gotcha. Um, and they were down to maybe as young as eight or so for okay. some of the non-speaking roles. It was at the Cumberland County Playhouse. Wow. Um, which I have not been to in a while. Yeah. And they, they do a really good job there. It was fun. They do good work. Yeah. Yeah. I've um, always been a fan of their productions. They 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 are a surprisingly serious uh, bunch of folks over there. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't really think that if you're if you're in the vicinity of uh, the Upper Cumberland. It's it, if you're going to be passing through on vacation, check it out um, because they are pretty good. You'll be glad you went as long as the the play is something that you would otherwise find interesting. You're sure. going to be pleased with the way that they perform it. Yeah. They, the high quality work mm-hmm. kind of tucked away. Venue is a lot of fun. Good there's, secret. There's, there's no, there's no bad seats really in there. Yeah. Much. They're kind of like a, like a best kept secret of this area. Yeah. yeah not a lot of people know, but yeah. it's good stuff. Yeah. And they do, they do good instructional work. Um, they're big on the triple threat approach okay. where you, you, you learn dance sure. and singing and acting together. So, which I think is great, even if you're not particularly interested in that as an actor, sure. those having those tools in the toolbox can do nothing but help, um, I would say, for whatever my opinion's worth. I'm not an actor, but <laughs> I know actors. I'm not an actor, but I played one on TV. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on. <clears throat> so, what are you reading these days? Okay, so I've got a lot to catch the listeners up on. Yeah, me too, so, actually. Um, I just read a what has to be the best breakdown of the Reformation that I've ever read. Okay. Called The Unquenchable Flame. I used to teach that ah, when I was there. And it is, that yeah. is solid work. Yeah. Solid, solid work. What a fantastic set of prose. Mm-hmm. Very easy to read. Um, it is engaging. It mm-hmm. is uh, insightful. Dare I say delightful. It yeah. was, it was a great, it's, it was a, great it's relatively short. Yeah. Um, maybe 200 pages, maybe but less. you get so much out of yeah. it. I mean, um, I think Deaver is Mark Deaver was the editor maybe, or yeah, maybe he, he was did involved. The um, I don't remember if he was, I can't remember who like the main, yeah, he, I don't think it was the main while. guy. I think he was maybe just the editor, but, um, I know he's kind of gone over the bend or gone around the bend or whatever but on a few things uh, on a few yeah. things but but this book mm-hmm. is don't let that turn you off this book is absolutely fantastic especially if you're looking for um like it's it's got great historical merit mm-hmm. so really good insight into that time period um it's, it's got some great theological propositions and will challenge you on some things and the, again the prose uh it was a master class in how to write good engaging historical prose i really um, enjoyed how that book was broken yep. up um it's it's not exclusively broken up by person but that's kind of the main thrust of each section sure. where it's like 
here's Calvin and what happened while he was a reformer. What was his major, con major contribution? Here's Luther. Here's, you know, the precursors to Luther. And right. you know, those. So I kind of, that I think is helpful. I yeah. once heard, I think it was MacArthur who, I want to say it was MacArthur who said, you know, how do you get in, into reading more history? And he was like, well, you pick biographies up because they're stories sure. about historical people. And then you kind of get into the history by the back door because you have to sort of learn about their world. Sure. So that was that's a good approach. And, and they and they kind of set the book up broadly like nails that. that. Yeah. I mean, they, they tell the story of the Reformation, a historical event through these biographical picks. Right. Mm -hmm. every, like you said, every chapter kind of essentially not, not not totally, but basically every chapter focuses on a person. And it's great. It was absolutely fantastic read. So um, just read that book. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. Um, and now I'm I'm getting ready to teach The Lord of the Rings, which of okay. course is um, always a good time. Yeah. So uh, that's that's what I've uh, most recently read. And this is your second round of teaching Lord of the Rings. Yes, right? this will be my second yeah. go through. Um, so I'm really looking forward to covering Tom Bombadil. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get my hands on... Is it C.R. Wiley? Did he just write a book on Tom Bombadil? Yeah. Podcast guys? Yeah. In the House of in Tom Bombadil. Is that something? right? Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it around. Yeah. I haven't picked it up. It's but, floating around the circles. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm trying to get my hands on a copy before I get to that chapter. Well, I'm a no guy. Fastly. I'll look into it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was a subtle that was a subtle <laughs> hint, hint, wink, wink, nod, yeah. nod kind of thing. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I'm headed. And then um, I... I We'll talk at the end of the episode. I've got a new book I'm going to have to read. So, okay. for our next, yeah, our next podcast. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, anyway, that's what I've been doing. That, uh, what have I been watching? Oh, last night. No, last night, two nights ago. I watched for the maybe the only the second time, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. What a fantastic film. What that, a strange film. It is great. Yeah. I love it. It's strange in such a fun way. It is. Um, it's such a wonderful look into like that Mississippi Great Depression era culture. Mm -hmm. Like the even the, something as simple as like the mannerisms and speech patterns, mm -hmm. are, they're just it was fantastic. It yeah. was absolutely wonderful. And what a wonderful! I I don't know that I've to date seen a better version of the Odyssey. You know that yeah, the, there the, hasn't. There's been a couple of I feel like there's been a couple of made for TV attempts at it. There's one with an Italian actor. What's his name? I don't know. <sighs> I haven't seen any versions of it in quite a while. Yeah. Um, it's not very good. So the one I'm thinking of is not It's very too good. bad, really. Yeah. Um, Why are we so bad at putting the best things on film? Think because, about it. well, I don't There's know. There's no good Odyssey. There's no good Beowulf. There's there's one good Beowulf. There, yeah, but even that is... Even is, that's not. It's a good movie, but it's a it's pulled very far away sure. from the source material. Sure. And I, I wonder... And that's like uh, the movie Troy with, yeah. um, right. with Brad, uh, Pitt Brad Pitt and Eric Bana. That's the Iliad, sort of. Sort but of. it's really like very distant from the source material. Right. So... And that movie's like probably like a B minus. Yeah, I like that film a lot. It's pretty good, but it's, but, but it, you're exactly right. The best versions of these stories are ones that are sort of like loosely adapted, based yeah, on yeah. kind of stuff. I don't know. I, I always kind of thought it would be fun to do, and I'm sure there's some people who have done this where the source material is just ironclad, like mm. down to like the actors are over on the side reading the novel. For direction, sure. You know, prior to the scene, sure. And um, 
you know, a really good audio book kind of makes me think of that, like where you've got a voice actor who can do multiple kind of characters in, right. in a way that's distinct enough that you're in there with them. Um, and I just, I wonder why they haven't done. I, I recognize that there are some difficulties with putting some things on film. I'm just not, I'm not convinced that there, if it's, if it's a question of enough creativity, can basically anything be put into that medium? And I don't know. I'm not saying that's true because I'm wondering if maybe part of the reason is because the, the medium of the written word is the best medium for an yeah. epic poem. Sure. And if you can't, if, if you just aren't going to like it in that format, there's just not going to be a better one. Right. That's a fair point. I, but it'd be worth a shot. It'd be worth a shot. I'd like someone to take a stab at it. Yeah. You know, someone, someone who's got the bones and the, and the know Like Odysseus with the Cyclops. Somebody take a stab yeah. at it. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so anyway, but yeah, that's, I watched, just recently watched A Brother Art Thou and uh, gosh, that scene where he, they, they pick up Tommy and, and they're in the car and, He's talking about selling his soul to the devil, mm-hmm. and the and the two At other the guys. Road, yeah. The two other guys have in the previous scene. They just gotten baptized. Yeah, and Everett's like, "Well, I seem to be the only one who's still unaffiliated." <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I don't know, man. It's just a great. I really love mm-hmm. that movie. Love and that lot. soundtrack for that movie is oh. kind of legendary yeah, as well. That's sure. that, that that took on a little bit of a life of its own. Absolutely. So. But anyway, have you been reading, watching anything good? Yeah. Well, um, so we planned to do Conan about a month ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with a, with a typical two week gap kind of, and then I got sick and then, uh, there was something else that came up in the meantime. And so now here we are and, and I have read, so I have three Conan books that are, um, like omnibus type books there. Yeah. It's between the three of them. It's all the Conan stories that Howard wrote. And I read all three of them from cover to cover, <laughs> um, including like some of the notes and stuff. I just kind of got on a tear and was enjoying them a lot. So um, I originally planned to only read like like one shorter one, like a 10-page one, and then maybe like a 50-page one. Yeah. And I just was like, well, I'm just going to read this whole book. And I was so into it that I was like, I'm just going to go pick up this other one that I have that I haven't read yet. So I've read them all now. Uh, as far as I know, there may be some obscure ones that are not in these, but um, I, I still don't consider myself like a super fan who knows everything about them, but um they are a lot of fun. So I, I did that. And then after finishing that, I went to a Robert Heinlein book called Space Cadet, um, which is one of his marginally earlier books. Gotcha. It's, it's 1940s era. Um, and it's one of those, we've brought this up before with the thing about like that era where there was the disillusionment with atomic power. And um, this is before Heinlein has kind of fallen into that depression <laughs> where yeah. he's like turned towards other alternative kind of softer sciences. Um, because this is like a, Oh, atomic power, which they use the term atomic because I guess nuclear power is not, not a common term yet. Um, it's going to enable us to sort of explore our solar system in a way that's practical for us to colonize and, and just be out on research missions all the time. And so of course there needs to be a, um, it reminded me a little bit of the Coast Guard, but there's a space force called the Space Patrol. And their mission is primarily like peacekeeping, police work, search and rescue operations. Honestly, it reminded me very much, if you're a fan of Star Trek, especially the older Star Trek, like mm-hmm. the Kirk, um, Spock, uh, first generation sure. stuff, you'll probably really enjoy it because it feels like... Um, the very earliest versions of the Federation. 
because it has a similar, they have a similar like mission. Like they participate in negotiations and diplomacy. They keep the peace. They are an armed force, so they can fight if they have to, but they prefer not to. And they, and they're just very benevolent. And there's Mm -hmm. not really the way Heinlein wrote it. There's not much hint of any kind of like, Orwellian overlord type stuff like gotcha. like you would um if it, if it was written today it would totally be full of that stuff right because everyone's depressed all the time now um they had a they had a bright view of of that and so it just follows this kid as he it, and he's a he's a child he's an older child he's like 13 or 14 he enters into the space patrol um training program which is very hard and it, the story is just kind of about him going through all this stuff and then the the book culminates in an unexpected problem where he and his cadet friends have to uh, save their lives and the lives of others um, mm. in the process. And so it reminded me very much of a, of a prototype version of Starship Troopers. It's less violent than Starship Troopers. You're talking about the, like the book, not the film. I hate the film. Yeah. I hate the film okay. so much. <laughs> we probably won't ever do that because <laughs> I hate it so much. But, um, and, and the film is, uh, it's a, that's a what's his name? It's the guy who directed RoboCop, whose name I can't recall. Yeah, sure. Um, Paul Verhoeven. That's who it is. It's a Verhoeven movie, so it's full of social criticism and uh, ultra violence to the point of comedy, where it's like it's so violent that it's not believable and it's just absurd. And um, his his takeaway is the opposite of Heinlein's takeaway, which right. is that like there is a there is a noble martial spirit that should be fostered, and also there's there's lots of other themes in that book that are really good, but the premise is basically the same. It's about a young guy who joins up, kind of lost, doesn't really know what he's doing, planning on staying in for a little while, um, and just keeps kind of sticking around until by the end of the book, he's like in charge of everything. And he's this grizzled old veteran who's now leading young recruits and kind of counseling them and helping them like find their way. Sure. In the process, they're fighting monsters and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So Space Cadet's like that, um, where he, he's kind of signed up. He doesn't really know. He's constantly wondering if he really belongs. And then he just keeps hanging around. And then there's a scene where um, it's almost a, a deja vu situation where he gets orders to go and do something. And then when he gets there, what you find out is that he's in charge of a class of new cadets that's come in behind him. And you had like several chapters before lived that through this through the eyes of a new cadet who had older cadets barking orders at him and stuff like that and you've walked through it with him and uh you know by the end of it you're like okay he's really a cadet like he's really going to become an officer and um he he just he did a good job with it yeah. starship troopers was was an upgrade to this version of it but it's a fun it's a fun read sure and if you're a star trek fan i think it would be worth your time it's not very long maybe 240 pages or something like that so sure that's the other thing besides conan that i've been reading and then for what i've been watching uh have i watched anything good lately okay so i watched this weird movie the other night you know i like my weird b <laughs> movies do. that's what, that's half the reason um, i do this podcast with yeah you, just to hear about your b movies so i watched this movie the other night called jabberwocky jabberwocky yeah which is a the name of a poem yeah do you Jabber, remember the Jabberwock. poem i cannot Jab- is it lewis carroll who wrote that that sounds right it's somebody crazy and it's about a monster the yes. poem is about a monster yes i and, know jabberwock from oblivion 
Scott, uh, Elder Scrolls Oblivion. Oh, you're thinking of Wabajack. The Wabajack. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a play on the. It probably is supposed I think to be. It is a play. Yeah. No, I thought it was the original thing. Yeah. Though. No, Wabajack, yeah, Wabajack is, uh, is that's this. This uh, Shea Gorth gives you the right. staff that's that turns right. it like changes things into random stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right, sorry, listener. I, well, right now, there's a bunch of Skyrim fans like <laughs> fist pumping at their car radio, um, or whatever they're listening on. So. Yeah, um, I'm, and that may be, that's probably part of where they came up with the name. Sure. Um, I've never noticed that before, though. But So Jabberwocky's an old poem, um, and uh, if you read it, it's, I, I had to read it in high school, and I remember thinking this is just insanity. It right. was still fun, though. It was kind of a fun, it was a rhyming poem. And So anyway, this movie this is from 1970-something. I can't remember what year it was. And um, I recognized a few faces from British comedic acting. Okay. Um, and there was something about it that was familiar, and I and I looked at up the IMDb, and the director is the same guy who directed uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> okay. So he's not a Monty Python like insider, and this movie was less surreal than Monty Python. Like it didn't have the interludes with like the weird animation stuff. Right. Um, but it had some of the same type of comedy. Okay. Um, kind of an an amusing like monster at the end. Um, it it was funny. It was worth my time. I yeah. think there's a nude scene in it, um, female nudity, but uh, it was relatively brief. So, um, but uh, besides that, it was it was kind of a funny funny little thing to stumble across. <laughs> um, How do you find this stuff? Well, Amazon, we have Amazon Prime, <laughs> and Amazon has all kinds of weird stuff on it, but sure. you have to, it's hard to find it because their their thing is set up to where you'll watch their stuff. Right. Um, so if you're on, if you're on there, you have to do a little bit of work to like look for those things. Fortunately, now I have my my history on Amazon Prime is so weird that it's like you might like this, <laughs> and it's just insane B movie garbage. You're on, you're on like three different watch lists. Yeah, bro. well, it's like stuff like that. It's like 1970s. Nobody's heard of this, and everyone's forgotten about it. Or it's like stuff with Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> or like just dumb, you know, uh, like schlocky action films and, or, and I, and I'm like, okay, I'll watch this and I'll watch a few minutes of it. And if it's, you know, if I'm enjoying it, then I watched one, the other, speaking of Dolph Lundgren, I watched another one the other day called silent trigger and, um, man, it was weird. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it, it's allegedly an action movie about a sniper. Which I don't know why I don't know why you get Dolph Lundgren to play your sniper because he's like a big strong guy. Yeah. So you'd want him to be like your door kicker kind of action man, but sure. he's like a sniper. And he has a spotter who's a chick. And it's it's revealed through the early part of the, the movie that they had some kind of they had previously worked together, they had a falling out, and then when they their whatever entity that hires them brings them together for this new job. Um they're like very it's very tense between ah. them like i think that one of them feels like they were betrayed i never i didn't finish it because i was bored um but the weird thing about this movie is that they're the location where they go to to set up to shoot they're shooting at somebody driving by on a bridge i don't remember if they bother to say who doesn't doesn't seem important to the story um it's just sort of the frame for why they're there it's an unfinished skyscraper and they're up in the penthouse he infiltrates secretly. She just comes in through the front door by by telling the security guards that she's there to work on computers or something. So she goes up there, but one of the security guards is an insane cocaine addict. 
And so there's this weird like B plot where this insane cocaine addict security guard, who's the best actor in the movie, by the way, is trying to get up there and like rape this woman. And oh my! And Dolph Lundgren beats him up, and she beats him up, and they handcuff him to a toilet. He keeps getting away. They need to hurl him off the building. Right. Is what needs to happen? But he keeps hanging around. So, um, and I, I was just like, ah, okay, <laughs> I'm gonna hang this one up. I don't care. Um, so if you if you want to watch Silent Trigger, then whatever. But uh, I didn't get my thumbs up. Well, let me let me end this section of our podcast. <laughs> yes, please do. I, I forgot to mention. <laughs> Put I did, it out of our misery. I did watch. Um, I watched two new films. Okay. So I watched the Batman. Yeah. Um, which is getting very mixed reviews. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm, I, this is a this is me shouting out to our uh, sister podcast, Pop Culture Quorum Dio. Are um, they going to do one on I, Batman? If they do, I want to come on. Oh, because so I've got things to say. Somebody needs to stand up for the Batman. Yeah, yeah I'm. I've got things to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jeff, if you're listening, invite yeah. me on. Um, so there's that, and then I watched the Adam Project. Oh, uh, I which saw is, that. I saw an ad for that. Yeah, it's a new um, Ryan Reynolds film uh, on Netflix. Um, and I will tell our listeners, if you really, really enjoy Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool-style films, you'll really like The Anna Project. If you don't like those films, don't watch it. Yeah. But I will say... Um, his, his personality kind of overshadows every project he's in now. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, and he's got... He's become a... He's, type, he's typed himself, right? Like, everything's just yeah. Deadpool now. Yeah. Uh, but he... Uh, I will say, the movie has a couple of moments... That are really gripping. Like, okay. it it takes itself. There should be a few. <laughs> well, it takes itself very seriously, okay. which is refreshing. Because uh-huh. um, that was I watched Free Guy. Yeah, I saw of, that. I actually, recently saw that too. Um, and it, the, the problem with that film, I felt like, is that it just didn't take itself seriously enough. Uh-huh. It was so comedy, but like, it, but it was still a drama, and so like mm-hmm. I didn't really know what to feel. Right. So like, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it wasn't a satire of a drama. Mm-hmm. It was a drama, but it was not taking itself very seriously. It was so anyway, jarringly, yeah. It was kind of yeah. Tonal, it was tonal, dis- tonal, tonal yeah. We got tone yeah, problems. Got, yeah. So that was my issue with Free Guy. This one, I felt like st- just struck a good balance of that Ryan Reynolds Deadpool style irreverent humor, mm-hmm. um, but also taking itself seriously in that the stakes are very high, and the emotional positions of the characters are very real. And uh, it's a movie that's all about fatherhood. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I just I, surprisingly, I walked away from the film. I mean, it's not like amazing or anything, yeah. but I was happy I watched it. I was yeah. really happy I watched it. One scene in particular got me choked up. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Fun. So, all right. A genuine emotional response. Yeah. That's in a Ryan Reynolds film. Yeah. Uh, that so reminds yeah. me. I mean, this is not sort of sci-fi, so it's kind of in the same genre, I guess. But the, the Tomorrow War with Chris Pratt. Yes, I've not seen it actually. I know um, what you're talking about. Though. That one, that one was surprisingly weighty as well. Um, you, you'd think it's just going to be a dumb action film, yeah. and and a lot of it kind of is. But there's, um, I felt pretty drained by the time it was over with. And yeah. I think that what they did with that one is that the the premise is that aliens have come, and humanity is losing the war, and so they use a time machine to go back in time to recruit people who they know from record keeping were going to be dead by then so they don't screw up the timeline um and so like you have to go for like one tour and one tour is like 
a week, I think. But every like massive losses, most people don't come back. And the the overhanging dread of like there is no future, like the world is gonna lose this war if we don't come up with a miracle, basically, was just really like, ugh. Yeah, sure. Um and all the characters are str- so like ultra high stakes. All the characters are struggling. There's some fatherhood stuff in that as well. There's some some PTSD commentary. Um okay. Uh, that is post-traumatic stress disorder commentary um, as well. and But it was a, it, the action was good. The creatures were really cool and scary. And um, it just, it was a good movie. I enjoyed yeah. it. I want to say they're making a sequel. It was, it went straight to Amazon Prime. Yeah, I think it Adam went straight Project to Amazon. Same. Um, and it was one that I think, I think this, the movie theaters were convinced it wasn't going to do well. Oh, so they kicked it straight to streaming. And I think that, uh, Amazon doesn't release their numbers, but I think that the estimates are like that it was it was hugely popular, and that they have already greenlit like another something yeah, sequel, sweet. prequel, whatever, some kind of thing to, to go along with it. Um, don't quote me on that, but that's what I heard. But it seems it's kind of similar, where it's like, oh, let's sit down and watch this popcorn action film, right? Oh, that's got a little more to it than I thought. Sure, maybe this maybe because I had low expectations. I think that's probably me with yeah. Adam Project too, where it was like I don't want to make it sound like it's the Titanic or right, something, but right, yeah. exactly. I just I thought another Deadpool free guy, mm-hmm. Ryan Reynolds, whatever, and it definitely is that. Yeah, but it's also there were just moments where I was like, man, this is this is hitting me, mm-hmm. hitting me in the feels. So. Yeah. All right, what do you think? Move I on. guess yeah. I guess let's do. Let's get on with it. So, um, so we got next up. We have should it have been a movie or a book? And we didn't prep this. <laughs> I forgot to check this one off. Uh, you got anything that comes to mind right away? Should it have been a movie or a book? Should it have been a movie or a book? I have a, I have a suggestion. Yeah, I want if you, you don't your, have one. Uh, nothing's co- nothing's like yeah. We need to talk about. This. All right. So I have. One of my one of my favorite fiction series of books is the Horatio Hornblower books. Yes. Which uh, the reason why I love those is because of the character of Horatio Hornblower. In my opinion, he's perfectly written. He's got strengths. He's got weaknesses. We have a we have a third person omniscient narrator who tells us about his inner monologues, and he's just this guy that after not much time with him, you really care about him and what happens to him and the people around him as well. And uh, I would love to see. This is this is going to transcend. Should it be a movie? This is going to go more into like kind of what we were just referring to, a strict by the book, literally by the book version mm. of something. And I'm wondering if it would be possible for a movie company or some production company to maybe not start with Hornblower because a historical epic would be horribly expensive to do like this, but do an eight-hour movie. And release it in episodic form sure. via streaming or just drop the whole thing onto a streaming service as one giant eight hour yeah. chunk and let people watch it as they want to. Yeah. Or 12 hours or whatever it is and just and just do Mr. Midshipman Hornblower. And and ha- and now there is Hornblower. There's a there are adaptations of Hornblower that exist from like the 90s. A&E did some. OK. And they're OK. Um, but they are they deviate significantly from sure. the book. They get the character kind of right. But I just would love to see how it would work without the inner monologue. And just could you find an actor that could pull this off and and communicate Hornblower's feelings and his 
insecurities. And did you finish? Did you ever get around to reading that? I know you have a copy of it laying around somewhere. I do. So we may end up doing the hornblower books at some point. Um, A and E gave up on it before they even got close to the end of the series. Um, But uh, I would love to see somebody do take a book, take like a, I mean any any book that you would want to do, and just like do it. The dialogue comes straight from the text. The the direction for the actors comes straight from the text. Yep. You know, if the if the book says he tried to hide his emotions because he didn't want people to know how he felt, the actor has to act that. Yeah. And how do you do it? Well, I don't know. You'd have to ask somebody who knows how to act well. Sure. Like how to approach that. Um, we could probably all think of someone doing that in a movie. That oh yeah, I can I can kind of visualize how that would work. Mm. Um, but I would really love to see someone do that. And that's what I and Hornblower is what comes to mind for me. Because I listen to my my favorite way to enjoy it is audiobooks. Because there's a there's a really good narrator named Christian Rodska. Um, I don't know if he's still doing it or not, but he has done almost all the Hornblower books, and it's just like I can see it in yeah. my head. You know, when I'm driving around, that's probably not safe, but um, <laughs> I can visualize what he's saying. I can see the characters in my mind and how they look mm. and. I can hear the tone of like obviously he has his own that he's bringing to the table, but it just makes me wonder: Would it be doable? Would it be successful? Would audiences be willing to sign up to be like, well, we can't finish eight hours obviously at once, but we can watch an hour. Yeah, and we'll come back when we have Streaming time. Streaming seems to have opened a lot of doors. Yeah, I'm thinking about the Snyder Cut, right? I mean, sure. it's a four-hour mm-hmm. film. It's clearly imperfect, but it's sort of released episodically, and and people watched it people watched it and loved it and so yeah and you've got the the a good example another good example would be like the haunting of hill house yeah um which love it or hate it um they released what was essentially a 10 or 12 hour movie i don't remember how many episodes it was or maybe i don't remember how many episodes it was did you you watch it i did and i i want to say it was eight or ten nine okay but i that i don't know why i'm saying that so like there was some there were some episodic things like there was you know they would have to start and stop, right. but like that's a, was one continuous story. They released it one season and done, and then the, the they brought the director back in to do a different story. Right, right, do the same kind of storytelling technique. This was highly successful. Take a different story, adapt it. Did it for a third one. We'll see if they continue. Um, I think that they've been successful. I think that Netflix has had good yeah. viewership on those. Um, I, so. I would love to see that. And, you know, there's obviously there's so many logistical issues or I shouldn't say issues, but obstacles that would have to be overcome getting an actor to sign on for something that daunting several actors to sign on yeah. for something that daunting. And then if you have a, if you have a character like Hornblower, for instance, you've got 11 books and the same actor could probably play all of them. Um, he goes from being a teenager to being like 60 by the end of it. Mm. So you could probably find somebody who's like late 20s, early 30s, give them gray hair um, by the time it's over with and get away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, or it might be worth it to just cast different people sure. to play them in different ones. I mean, who knows? You could even have different, you could have an entirely different creative team for each one where it's like, okay, the only the only criteria is you got to use the book. Cast who you want that fits with the book. Like, don't be casting, you know, sure. somebody that's, you know, a Viking giant to play Hornblower who's supposed to be 5'10 with brown hair. Right. Um, 
but besides that get who you want and uh you know kind of cinematography wise you can kind of do what you want but uh yeah but if you're like well you got to sign on for 11 movies that are all going to be like 10 hours and it's going to take six months to film all of them like individually um i don't know yeah those are some logistical obstacles what about the odyssey yeah there's a way that that could be done maybe sure so i don't know i but i'm with you has something like this ever even been attempted? Like, I'm trying to think of, if I've ever seen something that's like, yeah, this is word for word really just strict. from the book. So the closest that I've ever seen, and there's probably closer ones, like there may be some out there that are like infamously exact. Um, I know there's some people who would say the early seasons of Game of Thrones are like that because they, as it turns out, the the guys who were writing for it had like no talent. Right. So all they were doing was straight up using Martin's work. And when they ran out of it, everything fell apart and right. I didn't know what they were doing. And right. so the last two seasons were a wreck and everybody got mad about it. Um, but uh, the first several seasons were very strict. Um, so that's one thing, but the closest one that I've seen, which we may do this one, cause this is one of my favorite books and I have the movie uh, is the sun also rises. Okay. Um, which was 1960s, maybe 1950s um, era. And there's some things left out, probably just a bridge for time. But the dialogue in several scenes is word for word. Yeah. Um, it's noticeable. I've read the book like five times. And so I'm like, oh, that's exactly what they say. Sure. Like right down to the tone. So I don't know if the director of that one, I don't know anything about the director. If he came to the table and was like, this is Hemingway. We're going to do Hemingway's story. Right. Um, so that's the closest I've ever seen. Yeah. I mean. But it's an hour and a half or two hours. I don't remember exactly. Um, not a giant, you know, sure. long thing. Sure. And and what you're to, what you're proposing, mm-hmm. it would be that, right? Yeah. I mean, if you were going to do word for word, chapter for chapter, mm-hmm. right? Uh, this is what I want. Taking all the internal stuff, that's your actor's direction. Yeah. Everything else, we're doing. Yeah. I mean, you're talking hours and hours and hours of film. Yeah. So. And the only things that you could abridge would be like places where it says, you know, and they had to wait weeks for this to, you know. Right. Obviously, you're not going to just straight up have. <laughs> You know, like uh, them actually going on a voyage across the Atlantic and there's just like a live stream or something like that. Um, but yeah, they, you know, you, you have to edit those kinds of things out just so that you can only have dialogue and action and stuff like that. But, right. Um, I'm curious if it could be done or if it would be marketable if it were to be done. Yeah. So streaming, we'll probably think, never know. But. Well, I think streaming makes it possible. Maybe I would so. say probably before it was probably not possible. Yeah. But streaming, I think, makes it possible so that's exciting it's an interesting it's an interesting proposition so that's the closest thing i've got to should it be a movie should should a book actually be a movie yeah and we're saying let's try it. like should a screenwriter right. just be fired and right. they just straight take them take the book <laughs> hey that's a way to save money production <laughs> production money saved oh well, he's got these union screenwriters get them out of here get them out of here yeah. this is in the public domain <laughs> have you seen the critical drinker he says they're all terrible anyway bunch of children just get the book yeah a bunch of purple-haired children <laughs> all right so that's that all right next one up storytelling 101 you had an idea for this one i did so lay it on me so I think we should talk about the importance of proper setup and payoff. 
All right, explain to our audience what that means. Yeah, so... Actually, let me back up. Storytelling 101, if you're new to the podcast, if this is your first time, we aren't experts. We are not published authors or screenwriters. We don't know what we're doing. No. We just read good stories, and we notice things, and we talk about the things we spot. And so this is the section where we try to throw a tool in the toolbox of a potential storyteller or just someone who enjoys stories so that you know what to look for in high-quality literature or film yeah so um we're gonna we're gonna today we're gonna talk about setup and payoff setup and payoff so go for it so in stories um the way that that stories are structured you have this idea of setting up what was commonly referred to as setup the, the idea of setup and payoff which is this understanding that when you in usually early on in the film first act second act uh, when you introduce an idea, concept, um, attention, mm-hmm. um, some type of foreshadowing that the audience can reasonably expect in the third act for there to be a significant and satisfactory payoff, yeah. right? That, 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 that setup, that thing that you have set up, but again, whether that be a character, something about characters, something about the plot, a plot element, something about um, even thematic setup. Mm-hmm. Um, it wh- whatever that thing is, uh, that the the audience can reasonably expect that when they by the time they get to the end of the film, that that thing will be resolved in mm-hmm. some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I want to be careful here because many authors have used um the idea of basically cutting the payoff out entirely, right? That the payoff is that there is no payoff. Mm-hmm. Psych, gotcha. Yeah. Um. As a form of payoff, the red herring. The red herring. Yeah. Um, uh, this is common in mystery movies. Yes. And uh, and like horror films, where like you'll you'll see something early on that's meant to get you thinking a certain way, so that when it's revealed that it's not that way, the surprise is genuine. Yes. Which is enjoyable. Which that's is an good. enjoyable thing. Yeah. yeah especially genre specific, right? Mm-hmm. So, like you mentioned, thrillers, mysteries, whodunits, mm-hmm. um, Ryan Johnson films, Ryan Johnson films that are not Star Wars because yeah. he's never done that before. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the, that that's good. So, so even the lack of payoff can be a kind of payoff. Mm-hmm. So, I want to be careful with that. With you know, but we should expect some kind of payoff yeah. and, and stories that lack um, either clear intentional setup or satisfactory payoff often fall flat, mm-hmm. right? They often leave a sour taste. And so um, I didn't participate in this um, thing that, that many people did, but lost I've heard yeah. is sort of the big, um, one to point to as far as unsatisfactory payoff, yeah. right? That the setup of that, of that show was absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. That, that JJ Abrams was asking all kinds of very interesting questions mm-hmm. in the first few seasons of lost. But by the end of the show, what you come to realize is that he didn't have any answers. Yeah. Right. For, for any of those things. And so uh, the payoff is just, is very unsatisfactory mm-hmm. and that leaves a really, um, poor taste in your mouth for the entire show and which is why i've never seen it mm-hmm. it's because i've just heard that criticism from so many people that i know and trust yeah that i don't want to experience a great setup that mm-hmm. has a lackluster payoff yeah right um speaking of ryan johnson and jj abrams this the the sequel trilogy which i know we say doesn't exist um uh, <laughs> that it also does this yeah right that the, the first movie of the sequel trilogy 
is bad for 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 many reasons but one of them is that it asks questions the yeah. the main question being raised parentage mm-hmm. that they clearly just didn't have an answer for they sure. didn't know what they wanted to do mm-hmm. and by the time so when you get to the end the plot is some convoluted mess her mm-hmm. character themes are uh, or you know her motivations and her arc are completely deflated um it's like her, she she has parents then they're nobodies then they're guy no sorry then they're palpatines then she gets to choose and it's just it's just you're not even really sure what you're supposed to think about the payoff Mm -hmm. because there's like six different payoffs yeah and they're all bad right (laughs) none of them are satisfactory Uh and and what's really just again what's glaringly clear is that they just didn't know right yeah jj abrams is kind of infamous for this yeah he can't land a plane man yeah he's just good at asking questions Mm -hmm. he's not good at coming up with answers his a lot of times, his I think his plots depend on the perpetuation of the mystery in order to kind of drive the interest. And yeah. I did watch Lost when in, when I was in college is when Lost Fever was going around, sure. and I gave up on it. I don't remember what season, but um, I eventually was like, they're just not going to answer any of these questions. Right. And I think I quit. Maybe I want to say it went seven seasons, and I maybe maybe after the fourth one, I quit watching it or the fifth one. Um, it just it got really. Lo- like it got really lost. I mean, frankly, um, but it was, it was a fascinating concept. Um, they, they plane crashes on a science fiction Island. Um, it's, it's a regular looking desert jungle Island, but there's like polar bears on it and there's a monster made out of smoke and there's, there's people already there that are like weirdos that are hunting them and stuff. And they, they eventually kind of reveal some of those things, but, um, mostly like you just, it becomes very clear, like, oh, they just don't know what they're doing. Right. Like at some point you're just like, well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm checking out and I'm kind of glad I did cause I never did see the end and the end was pretty controversial. Um, with most fans, I think being like, what are, you know, what a lazy way out. Sure. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's lost. Let's contrast that with, um, with a good setup and payoff. Okay, so Star Wars: A New Hope, sure. Episode Four, the original. Um, we have Luke Skywalker, who is introduced to us as a good pilot, right? Um, or his father was the, one of the best star pilots in the galaxy, right. according to old, old man Kenobi, who is had. There's a big exposition dump when they go to Kenobi's house. Um, Luke is a good pilot. We learn later. There's actually a deleted scene, which is in the special edition of it, which I support including because one of his friends who knows him previously says, Luke is one of the best fighter pilots that I know. And we hadn't heard anyone say that. We heard that his dad was, but there is a scene in the briefing where he says, oh, the exhaust port's two meters wide and you have to hit it with proton torpedoes because it's ray shielded. And, and everyone's like, that's impossible. And he's like, no, I've hit things two meters. I've hit womp rats. They're about right. two meters, maybe a little bigger than two meters. Um, however, throughout the film, we also have the tutelage of Obi-Wan Kenobi teaching Luke Skywalker how to use the Force. Mm-hmm. And um, he's been having setbacks showing some growth here. Obviously the main setback is the death of Kenobi. Um, and all this culminates with the final death star trench run. Luke does not go first. Red leader goes first fires and misses. The targeting computer has failed on his X wing, super advanced space fighter pilot. And so he goes in with his targeting computer. We know he's an expert pilot because we've had that set up for us. 
but we've also had the force set up for us. So what happens? Obi-Wan Kenobi comes across the force and says, basically turn off your targeting computer and trust the force. It will guide you and you'll know what to do. And he does, fires, blows up the Death Star, saves the day. Right. Now, if he had instead used his targeting computer and been successful, would that have been a less satisfactory ending? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Very much so. Now, we know he's a good pilot. We've had that set up. But we've also seen him flying already, so we know like that paid off. Like, right. We've seen he's a good pilot. He, If he had showed up at, at the Rebel base, not having had set up that he was a good pilot, and they just stuck him in an X-Wing, yes. the audience would be like, what are they doing? Right. Are they that hard up that they don't sure. have, like, they just this, need literal warm bodies? Yeah. Is they can't even have a pilot's license? So that, so that setup is basically like, his, his story is he wants to go fly yeah. planes for the Rebellion. Mm-hmm. He gets that at the end or at the beginning of the third act. He gets that. Yeah. But the force arc, which is set up for us throughout the movie, culminates with him trusting the force, not to his previously established skill set, which is inadequate for this task. So there's your setup. There's your payoff. And at the end of the movie, we're like, ah, oh, sure. Everything is tied up neatly. Yeah, neatly. Here's another one. Han Solo shows back up at the end, right? Like right. we've had... We've had set up for him to be this mercenary, but we've seen his arc coming around. And uh, by the end of it, he says, uh, may the force be with you, which is interesting because previously he mocked the force, right? right? But he wants to have a moment with Luke, who has become his friend. He shows back up at the end to save the day. Right. And everything is perfect. All the things are set up. All the things are paid off. There are no loose ends dangling except one. Darth Vader is still loose in the galaxy. And that gives us Empire. Perfect sequel bait. Yeah. And it's not Darth Vader's story, so we don't really have an arc for him to... Sure. Actually, turns out it is his story. Right, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but that not not yet. Um, yeah. So there's a good one. Now we've got... We'll, we'll bring this up again with, with Conan, because we're getting into that, because there's some setup and payoff in Conan that I want to talk about. Um. But do you have anything else you want to say about well, setup and payoff? You know, it's not. You've done a really good job, Han Solo. You did. You did a really good job um, with looking at Luke's setup and payoff from a plot perspective. Yes, right. That the plot elements set up mm-hmm. this kind of a conclusion. Great. And with Han Solo, you actually sort of juxtapose next to that that his is a character set up and pay off yeah. right that's not so much that the plot demands that he come back at the yeah. end but his character arc demands yeah. it and right? we'll be bummed out if he doesn't it, exactly yeah. the, the character the character arc demands it let me let me just throw a third what i think is the third type of setup and payoff for our listening audience and that is the thematic setup and payoff okay so and i'll use a different movie i'll use um uh pixar's onward okay uh, which is an animated film and the theme of pixar's onward film Uh, there are several themes that we could pull out one of them is um the sort of the value of a of a traditional um old timey way of thinking right Mm -hmm. that that the modernity isn't in and of itself virtuous right Mm -hmm. that's one theme we could pull out of it but it's not really the central theme although it is certainly important the central theme of that film is uh, it is really about fatherhood right Mm -hmm. it's about um the importance of fatherhood and uh, the pain of growing up without a father. And so the, that theme, the setup of that theme is given to us in the very beginning when the boys, 
you know, sort of uh, their their dad is taken from them, and we're introduced to our young protagonist, and he's constantly um, thinking about his dad that he never knew, and struggling with a uh, concept of self and identity because he's a dad. Um, and then the plot takes place where he gets powers and he goes on this road trip, and the theme is driven home. The payoff of it is driven home when in the character's um, darkest hour, the 11th hour, which is another plot thing that we should talk about in a different episode. Uh, But in his darkest moment, what he realizes is he comes to the realization that he's had a dad the whole time, Mm -hmm. that it's his older brother um, who he's been on this road trip with. And so that's a thematic setup and payoff Mm -hmm. that is maybe one of the most satisfactory setup and payoffs I've had in an animated film in a long time since yeah. like the golden age of Disney. Yeah. Right. Um, because the theme of the importance and value of fatherhood mm-hmm. is established early on. And it's driven home in the fact that essentially our protagonist is our protagonist because he had a dad. He yeah. just didn't know it mm-hmm. until it was sort of forced until, until circumstances kind of forced a realization. Yeah, yeah. Look at his life differently in a mm-hmm. different paradigm. Um, so that's a fantastic uh, thematic setup and payoff that le- when I finished that film, I was um, just emotionally charged, you know, like mm-hmm. I was I was pumped. I was jazzed. I was you know, I was weeping a little bit like it's just when you have a really good theme. First of all, the theme itself is good. Yeah. And then it's set up well and, mm-hmm. it, and the payoff is satisfactory. It will leave your audience, whether it's a viewing audience, if you're a movie or TV producer, um, your uh, reading audience, if you're a book writer, your listening audience, if you're uh, doing some sort of audio work, even music. Um, but yeah. it will leave your audience feeling satisfied, right? Mm-hmm. Like the movie, the book, the song, whatever, has delivered. You yeah. Know? And that and that that movie delivers thematically in a way that is just you know, good stuff. Mm. So, um, yeah, set up and payoff. Yeah. You know, that most, most, I would argue most of the success of a story hinges on, on, on a couple of major foundational pieces. Mm-hmm. And I would say one of them is set up and payoff. Yeah. And we've, we've mentioned a few times setups that fail to pay off or pay off if inappropriately, but you can do the opposite too, where you have a payoff that is improperly set up or mm. not at all set or up. Or not at all set up. And then, and that's when you, as an audience <coughs> member, you're sitting here watching this movie and something happens at the end of the movie and you're like, what? Yeah. Where did that come from? That's motivated by nothing. How did he, um, I can't think of any examples of that off the top of my head, but, um, well, okay. So episode nine. Um, <laughs> it's easy to rag on. Sure. Like they, when they change lightsaber, when he like transports the lightsaber through the force, yeah, um, I would make an argument. Well, actually, that might have been set up, wasn't it? Did they did they transfer something earlier? Or he gets wet because yeah. there's water. They okay. do set up. Okay, bad example. She blocks the force with the lightsabers. Why? Yeah. How? Why is she able to beat him like that? Like. That's I don't know. Maybe this is not a, this is this this I just I'm trying to think of something off the top of my head. Sure. So maybe this is the strongest example. But well, payoffs that haven't been set up by struggle I, yeah. is, a, is a really common problem in modern movies. I yeah. would say yeah, they so just pop up protagonists that 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 have this you know 
in the in their final fight, whatever that is, right? Mm-hmm. They overcome. But if they never struggled before, yeah. then it's not really them overcoming. It's yeah. just the next thing that they've done well. Mm-hmm. And so like Ray struggles with that. Like her character has that problem where mm-hmm. she never really struggles with anything. So she never really because she never struggles, she never overcomes. Yeah. Right. And so that's a payoff that hasn't been set up. Yeah. Right. Because I've got this overcut and the music tells me mm-hmm. that the way that it's, the scene is blocked, the, the way that she's that that um, the actress is acting, the music, all of those things are combining to tell me this is a moment where my protagonist is overcoming. And I've been trained to think that way because mm-hmm. of the way that stories have been told since the West. But there's know, like a gap a thing. somewhere, but there's yeah. been no struggle. There's been no setup of, well, she has not, not had any setbacks exactly previous to this. Like yeah. she has not met the emperor and failed. She has yeah. not, you know, with take the, okay, we'll go back to the old, the original trilogy. Luke had not met the Emperor and failed. His father, however, had. And we knew that the Emperor was very powerful. And so we knew what the stakes were when he went up against him. And he essentially lost, uh, in, in terms of physical force, he basically lost to the Emperor. And the only reason why he didn't die in that moment was because his father was redeemed by sacrificing himself to destroy evil right. in that moment. And... Um, you know, that, that is set up for us. And like Luke doesn't really win because he isn't the one who needs to overcome the emperor. It's the one who failed to do so before that, right. which was Anakin Skywalker. Right. Right. Um, and you don't need to see the prequel trilogies to get that. Sure. But you can, from, because yeah, sure. it shows it more explicitly, but you get that from the original from the trilogy originals. as it's sure. self-contained. Sure. Um, never happens in the, and that's just, that's the same thing. That's the JJ Abrams thing where like, they didn't know that they were going to do that when they wrote episode seven and filmed it. Right. And that's where they made their mistake. There was not one creative in charge of the arc of the story. Yeah. If you want to have multiple teams doing specific things, that's fine. But you need, um, a Kevin Feige to stand around and be like, no, because by the time we finish this, they have to be here. Sure. This has to happen at the end. So you've got to do this when we get to the second act, which is the second film. If you're going to try to blow it up to that size, right? This has to be happening. And the original trilogy does it perfectly. You have the first movie, which sort of establishes the status quo. It's its own self-contained story. You don't need the others to enjoy it. Second movie, same characters in their darkest hour. They're at their lowest. They're right. losing. They've lost. They've all been scattered. Yeah. Um, there's a glimmer of hope at the end, but like um, the Empire has won. The Empire has struck back, as the title is. And in the third movie, they have to rise. They have to decide if they're going to rise from these ashes to win, or if they're just going to de- be defeated. Sure. And they and they do. Um, that doesn't really happen with. I mean, I guess you could. I mean, episode eight, they do kind of get beat up a little bit, I guess, but like Ray doesn't. <laughs> right, right. Um, and we don't really care about anyone else. Um, sure. We don't really care about her either. But anyway, we beat up on Star Wars enough. Enough <laughs> of this emotional crap. <laughs> enough of this emotional crap. Let's talk about Conan Let's the Barbarian. Conan. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Conan the Barbarian. We, we, uh, we watched Conan the Barbarian. We read a number of Conan stories. Yeah. Okay. Conan is originally, you can find lots of stories by about Conan written by multiple authors now, but the original and best in my opinion, and I'm sure most of the other authors who have written him would agree is uh, the originals by Robert E. Howard, um, who was writing in the 1920s and thirties. Most of them, or many of them at least, were in science fiction serial magazines, which you could get in those old days, which I really wish were kind of still around. And 
I'm sure you can still get some, but I would I would be highly suspicious of the quality of their content. But sure. there was really a golden age of this stuff. Um, Howard is a interesting dude, um, and he is a is just a man. He's a surprising figure. Yeah, Howard was a jock. He was into boxing. He was uh, like into weightlifting, um, and he was a brilliant wordsmith, um, really top notch. And he was he was friends with nerds. He was like good friends with H.P. Lovecraft. I think Lovecraft gave the eulogy at his funeral, if I remember right. Um, he died young. I think he was thirty five or something like that. Hmm. I should look that up. But I, I it was something relatively young. Um, and uh, he created Conan. He created a few other characters. Um, Cole, The Exile of Atlantis, which there was a Cole movie several years ago. Oh, really? Long enough ago that I remember there being a giant cardboard cutout at a blockbuster video of Kevin Sorbo with an axe. <laughs> <laughs> because that's who played him. Kevin Sorbo, fresh off the Hercules, The Legendary Journeys yeah. TV show. Um, was asked to play Cole. Don't think it went anywhere. Pretty sure it was a bad movie. Um, Conan, of course. Uh, Solomon Kane is another one of his characters that's relatively well-known. Yeah. They did a movie of that that was terrible as well. Um, we probably won't do that one, unfortunately. I love the Solomon Kane character, and they just did not understand him at all sure. when they made the movie. Sure. Um, he was a big uh, writer of horror stories. I have one book that's just nothing but his horror stories. Um, which we might get into some of that too tonight. Um, and we're going to juxtapose this, of course, with the 1980... 1981 version <laughs> of Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger action vehicle. One of his earlier pictures, not his first one, um, but he was he was, he was fresh-faced and young. He had been Mr. Olympia. Yeah. Um, I think he was eight times by the time he was retired. And so this is uh, this is an era where they wanted to they wanted to cast remarkable-looking people to play these kind of roles. Sure. So they were like, well, who do we who can we get? Well, this guy is Schwarzenegger. Whatever. I can't <laughs> pronounce it. We can get this guy. I don't think he knows English, but. He's jacked. He's super huge. So um, here's a headshot. Here's what he looks like. You know, he sent us in some stuff from his contest. So they were like, sure, yeah, let's cast him. We'll just make sure his dialogue is kind of minimal and we'll coach him. Um, we can talk a little bit about Schwarzenegger as an actor. Um, he's not a very good actor. No. But he's an incredibly charismatic person. He is. And so uh, he he is kind of a character in and of himself. I mean, he not so much anymore, but in his prime – um, it was like this movie starring Schwarzenegger as himself basically was kind right. of what you got. Um, and it was fine. Sure. <laughs> you know, sure. I really didn't have a problem with that. Um, some, some things he did better than others. Um, I, I would love to, to think what his most famous role would be. Um, and I, I want to say Terminator or Terminator two has to be, um, right. would probably be it. But, uh, <laughs> Nick would say jingle all the way. That is a horrible <laughs> film. That is a terrible <laughs> movie. Oh, <laughs> all these huge guys side note all these huge guys have this thing like it's a part of their career like it's a part of your career track where eventually if you're like a jacked hollywood guy you have to do like a family comedy right to kind of like i don't know 
self-deprecate or something. I don't know why they do it. But the funniest thing to me about it is that in those movies, nobody ever comments on how huge they are. You know, it's just like, oh, he's a regular guy. And you're like, no, that guy's, that's Dwayne Johnson, you know, yeah, like, right. weighs 300 pounds of solid. Mo- so anyway, um, we have here Conan the Barbarian, 1981. Yeah. Uh, now, when you're thinking of brain dead action films, schlocky action movies, yep. this one may be one that comes to mind. Yeah. You would be wrong. Yeah, in my opinion, there is some there is some kind of silly action stuff in it, but it's surprisingly and it's an it's a surprisingly intelligent movie. It is. It's it is the the bar of the movie is raised significantly by James Earl Jones. Yeah, that's James, true. James Earl Jones adds a layer. I I honestly think. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, writing is a big part of that. So like yeah. he has all the best stuff, yeah. right? Like his character has all the best. He lines. has a lot to work with. Yeah. He has, uh, these sort of smoldering looks where yes. he, he's, he plays a wizard, yeah. um, who has sort of hypnotic powers, yeah. um, which is a common thing in Conan, the Conan stories. Magic is very rare in the Conan stories. It's not like dungeons and dragons where like anybody can be a wizard. Right. It's more like Lord of the Rings where magic is very unusual it's remarkable when it comes across. And a lot of the magic is based on, it's not really magic. It's really hypn- hypnotism right. um, and, and tricks and things like that. Um, and so Conan sees through a lot of that stuff in the stories. Uh, but every once in a while he runs into like real magic and it's a serious problem. Like he has to overcome like serious threats. Sure. Um, so we have Tulsa doom, Tulsa doom is the character yeah. um, who James Earl Jones plays and it's it's a little bit in the beginning. It's a little bit ambiguous as to whether or not he has real magic or not. Yeah. By the time it's over with, you know that he does. <laughs> yeah, right. But um, but yeah. So he's in it. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's probably not many other characters. Sandal Bergman plays the the female love interest. Um, I couldn't recognize her from another thing. She. So weirdly enough, she is in another movie with Schwarzenegger called Red Sonia. Oh, okay. I think... No, that's not right. Valeria? No, that's the character that she plays in this one. Right. I, I It might be Red Sonia. They might have done a Red Sonia movie, which I think is another Robert E. Howard character. Okay. Um, she's a comic book character um, in modern times, but she's a similar sword and sorcery type person. Sure. Um, and Schwarzenegger is in it, but not as Conan. He plays like a different guy. Um and so it's confusing <laughs> because yeah. they basically play the same characters. It's like they look the same, they act the same, but they have different names. Sure. Um, so she, but she plays the female love interest in this one. And then there's a couple of other people uh, who are in it. Um, Mako, who plays I was his. Gonna, I, so I was going to say, if you are a fan of Avatar The Last Airbender, yes. the animated show, you will recognize the narrator from this movie. Yeah. Because it is Uncle, it is. Uh, Uncle Iroh, uh, yeah, from Avatar. Last he's Day. a great narrator too. Yeah, he is perfect. Yeah, he is absolutely perfect. Um, he's over the top, uh, and he and which is appropriate for what he's doing. Sure. Um, and his character in the in the movie. So <laughs> he's he's introduced as a narrator at the beginning. Off screen, he tells us that this is the age of, uh, the Hyborian age. Conan. Uh, this is the story of Conan, who the Sumerian who would eventually wear the crown of Aquilonia on right. a troubled brow, um, and he he just delivers that line like through his gritted teeth, and it's just perfect. Um, and then uh, and then our score starts uh, by Basil Polidorus, which is a great like it really enhances the movie. Yeah. 
um, outstanding. It, you could work out to it. Like it's great high tempo action. It's, it's up there with other great examples of scores in my opinion. Sure. Um, so I'm not sure where, what should we talk about first? What, well, do you want to, what do you want to do first? Tough to do a plot synopsis of the short stories. You yeah. want to talk about how he wrote sure. his short stories, and then I'll do a, maybe a, just a brief plot synopsis of the film. Okay. Um, and then we can talk about themes and such yeah. about that. All right. So um, Conan, the Conan stories are, uh, they vary a lot in tone. Some of them are downright horror stories. Some of them are more a little more, more lighthearted. Um, there is a... Uh, there's a lot of use of color um, as symbol symbolic uh, stuff. He, he uses the color black um, to several of his stories have the word black in the title, like um, Beyond the Black River, which Beyond the Black River is a is a reference to a region that's controlled by the Picts, P I C T S, which um, is a real historical that's people group. Yeah, um, that's like from like Scot yeah, Scottish northern, area, north, northern. Um, they're yeah. kind of a like a Gaelic northern yeah northwestern uh, tribe. Um, I, the way they're described in the book sounds more like Native Americans to me. Um, they wear they they wear paint, but they have eagle feathers in their hair. Um, he, a lot of his uh, historical stuff, which maybe we should talk about. Let's start with that. Actually, okay. Let's talk about Hyboria. Um, Conan is well. Howard is, as far as I know, the first guy who ever created like a a complete world, a complete fantasy world, complete with maps. Um, it's not nearly as lived in. It's not nearly as fully thought out as Tolkien's middle earth, which would come very shortly afterwards because Hobbit was released in 37. Yes. Something like that. And so already, and I'm sure by then Tolkien was already working on all that stuff, but, um, he wanted Conan to, to exist in a place and that you could be able to visualize it and think about like, okay, these two countries don't get along and he's hanging out on the border. So that's going to have results. Like there's going to be, that means something. Yeah. Um, so, uh, if you, if you get online, you can find some pretty good high definition maps of Hyboria that people have created based on his descriptions. And if you, if you pay attention in his stories, you'll find that many of his groups, some are more well disguised than others, but they're all kind of based on real people. Um, like the Stygians are, are clearly supposed to be Egyptian, mm-hmm. but their name comes from the river sticks, right? right? Cause, and, and he uses that, that is meant to call to mind images of death, right? And they are a people that they're a little bit more magic than others. They're very old people group They're In some stories they're referred to as the first people who ever were there. And like others came later and kind of dethroned them as like the superior, but they have pyramids and mummies and stuff like that so they they have that going for them if you go way to the east you run into kitai which is china and that's the most magic place of all it's right. a, the forests are all haunted with all sorts of weird monsters and if you run into to Kitaian people then there's a high likelihood that they're going to have some kind of magic going on there's mongolian sort of steppe peoples above them which makes like that checks out with real geography sure Below the Stygians is where most of the like black people live. So that's obviously supposed to be like Africa, northern and southern Africa. Um, there's a group of people that I'm pretty sure are supposed to be like Jewish called the Shemites. Um, and Aquilonia, which is kind of the, I guess, sort of the main place, uh, is British high fantasy, kind of like King Arthur style. Right. 
Um, Conan is from a place called Samaria, which is described as very hilly, rugged, uh, not good for farming, but good for hunting. Um, his people are barbarians who live free. No one can ever conquer Samaria. Um, he is a wanderer who has left Samaria to just kind of pursue his fortune. And so much like a, much like an American Western, he, he will often just ride into town in the midst of some sort of something happening. Right. Sometimes when we get into the story, he is already taken up service and as a mercenary or something. Um, and then the plot will unfold from there. So let me give you an example. Beyond the Black River is one that I mentioned. Beyond the Black River is an interesting one because it is not Conan's story. If you read it, you will find that it is the story of another guy whose name escapes me because I read it like a month ago. Um, but he shows up to the area um, and is looking to stake a claim. Um, the Aquilonians are pushing the border, the picked border away, and they're they're looking for like pioneers to come in and sort of clear land and set up farms and kind of just take dominion from the area. And he's looking in the region of this fort. It's like the last fort before you get into picked territory. So he's looking for a claim. He gets himself lost and he almost gets murdered by a Pict who Conan shows up and kills at the last minute. And then they kind of hang around for a while because Conan is a mercenary who has already taken service for the king of Aquilonia to wander around Pict territory and kind of keep the peace if he can. And turns out that the captain of the fort captured a Pict wizard who was drunk. They caught him drunk one night because they, they captured a merchant caravan full of wine and they all got drunk. So they captured him. They kept him in a cage, which is a grievous insult to the picked people. It would be better to kill them than to imprison them. And so he is either escapes or is set free. I can't remember which, but then he starts sending like monsters over the river to kill people. Um, so it's very spooky. Uh, they, they send a raiding party in after him, including Conan, but everybody gets killed except for the protagonist and Conan. They get separated though. The protagonist is captured and he's almost eaten by a giant snake and Conan shows up and kills the snake and they, they escape. And uh, there's various misadventures. It's a great story. It's got a great conclusion. It, it completes the character arc of our POV character, who's I wish I could remember his name, and a dog, oddly enough. <laughs> there's a dog that appears about halfway through it and he has a character arc. <laughs> um, and Conan, Conan escapes to fight another day. Um, and... Uh, they kind of win and kind of don't, but it's a uh, it's a very satisfying story. Yeah. Uh, other stories, Conan, you is your POV character. You enter the story through him. You see him do things. He has to struggle to overcome some kind of weird thing, yeah. and then often he pulls a James Bond and kind of gets away with the girl. Yeah. And um, goes off to find another adventure. Is usually the way it ends. And so, uh, the only exception to that is the um, the only novel that Howard wrote about Conan um, is called the hour of the dragon. And it is about Conan when he is king of Aquilonia, which he acquires through like non hereditary means. Um, and he's off. He's put off his throne by a powerful wizard who's resurrected by some slightly less powerful wizards has to go on a quest to find a thing, a MacGuffin to get rid of the wizard. So you want to quickly can... explain what a MacGuffin is? Just oh, sure. Yeah, a MacGuffin is a it's, a... it's a locus of conflict, if you will. But you've seen it before, if you've ever seen any movies ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, usually a MacGuffin is some kind of destructive device. The, the one that most people probably are familiar with is going to be the Infinity Stones 
from uh, the Marvel films and the Infinity Gauntlet, uh, where the whole movie basically is like two parties struggling to get control of this thing. Um, and there's usually a reason. Often it's something that can kill or destroy. Um, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sure. The Ark of the Covenant is the MacGuffin that they're trying to get. Um, MacGuffins can be lazy. Like you can write a MacGuffin poorly to where it's just like, we got to get this thing for reasons. And you don't really get the stakes or why. Um, but good MacGuffins are fine. There's really nothing wrong with them. But I'm not sure where the term comes from. I actually don't remember. Yeah. But uh, in this case, it's a magical stone. And the magical stone is the source of the power of the wizard that has been resurrected. And if they can get it, get it in the hands of a magic user who can sort of turn his magic against him, which is what they are able to do to kind of win the day. Um, but uh, that's kind of the gist of how they start. Yeah. And they go through, there's often monsters. A lot of times they're spooky. Uh, he does a good job with building things up. He's really great with atmosphere. Um, Conan is a skeptic. Well, yes. not exactly a skeptic. There's a really good line in one of these where somebody says something to him like, you can't fight against devils or something like that. And he says, well, I don't go picking fights with devils, but I'm not going to get out of their way either just to let them pass. And um, so he, he knows that if you can cut it with steel, then he can probably kill it. And uh, that's the character. He's highly intelligent. He's described repeatedly as panther-like in his movements. That's like one of uh, his favorite Howard's favorite ways to describe him. He's very stealthy, but he's also super jacked. Yeah. Um, so he physically doesn't really have any weaknesses. Um, but, uh, you know, various times things now, happen to him and he has to sort them out. So Howard was writing at a time when uh, writing for uh, magazines, newspapers was really popular. Yeah. Um, were the Conan stories written for that kind of publication? A lot of them are broken into sections. Because they're very, it's very much like short story anthologies, right? Yeah, like, but so within the story, you'll have like part one, part two, sure. and it'll be five pages or something like that. Um, and so it, they're always a, there's always a cliffhanger so that you'll want to get the next issue of the magazine um, until the very end, yeah. and then it's over. But uh, yeah, a lot of them... Uh, were they, they were published just, that way? Yeah, they read as I'm. I'm wasn't sure, but when I was reading my, I didn't read nearly as much as you did. But I, I read several short stories, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because they are all short stories, right? Except for do the you one remember novel. which ones you read? Do you remember uh, the titles? Tower of the Elephant, I think is oh, one yeah. of them, uh -huh. and the Frost Giant's Daughter. Okay, uh, that one's not even really a Conan yeah, story. Yeah, it's not. That one's like he's yeah. That one's just. Kind of weird. Uh, it's just a sort of a barbarian, yeah, barbarian Norse woman. mythology and, like, kind of thing. Yeah, um, Tower of the Elephant, Frost Giant's Daughter, and I may have read Beyond. I don't think I read Beyond the Black River. I, I can't remember which one. I I've read a couple of others. Like you said, it was like a month ago. Um, Tower of the Elephant I remember most because it's. It, I think it was one of the source materials for the movie. Yeah, because um, mm -hmm. they kind of have that tower experience, which we'll get to. Uh, but yeah, they're very much they're short stories. Mm -hmm. They're um, if you pick up one of these great anthologies like what you have here, uh, they're very much um, like one doesn't lead into the other. Yeah, they're, you don't need them to go in order. Yeah, like they're mm -hmm. they're in fact it seems like they're almost intentionally written out of order. Yeah. Like sometimes he's the king, sometimes it's like no, he's a young man who's just a mercenary. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes he's famous. So, yeah. Sometimes, uh, he's, sometimes nobody knows who nobody he is. Nobody knows who he yeah. is. And, um, yeah. So they're just, it's just kind of all over the place in a way that I don't mean, I don't mean to say that in a way that sounds negative because I don't yeah, think yeah. that it is. It's just, 
That's just how they're written. Um, and I, and I, I love that. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, th- I think of that as like, uh, it's comparable in my opinion to, to, um, uh, Indiana Jones where, or a James Bond where it's like, these could be any time. I mean, India, Indiana Jones, they're all anchored in a setting. Like they have a setting, but like you could make an Indiana Jones with a different actor. I don't know why they haven't done that yet. They keep trying to use, you know, and I get it. Like people are going to want to see the original guy, but like, come on, he's, he's 189 years old. Like it's time to move on, recast him, put him back in the 1930s and just let's do a different adventure because it doesn't matter. Cause it doesn't matter. Right. Um, It doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter that they're out of order. If you, if you watch the original three Indiana Jones films, they're out of order. Chronologically speaking, Temple of Doom is first. Right. And um, Raiders is second. And I think last crusade is last. So, Um, I don't remember why they did that. Oh, I think it was because they didn't, they didn't think it would make sense for there not to be Nazis unless it preceded the first film. Right. Um, in, in time, which I, there weren't Nazis in India. Right. <laughs> like, I, I mean, they may have been eventually at some point, but like, I, it, that seems like a silly thing to do, but anyway, they did a good job with those. Sure. So there's not, sure. I can't really level much criticism at them, but, uh, same thing with James Bond. Doesn't matter. You can watch him in any order, um, with the exception of some of the newest ones, where it's like, oh, you have to know who that girl is because he married her. Well, uh, you know, if you watch the older ones, none of that matters. Right. There's right. references made to a wife that he had that died, and in one of the old movies, he gets married and she gets killed. Um, but that's one of the least popular ones of the series, in my opinion. And uh, it doesn't ma- again. It doesn't matter. Even sure. if you don't know that, it doesn't come up much. So sure. like, you don't need to know his whole backstory. You just Howard does a good job of telling you what you need for this story. Exactly. exactly. And um, so uh, the yeah. reason I brought that up is because it 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 makes I imagine it offers some pretty unique opportunities if you're going to try to make a Conan movie, mm-hmm. uh, but also presents some unique challenges. Yeah. Because they had to take these short stories. Yeah. And essentially piecemeal them together yeah um in order to create a cohesive narrative and it, they the way that they do that is by pulling on several different stories yeah they borrow uh, elements from pieces yeah of, from yeah. all kinds of different pieces to give us the conan movie mm-hmm. which focuses on a young conan it's an origin story yeah um he doesn't end with the crown on his brow no um he uh but you know he you know, we, we get a good, I think that we get a good picture of who Conan is as a character. Right? Yeah. And so um, it's inconsistent with the story, with the books. Right. But it is in, in the movie's context, he's well-established. Yeah. So, and so the movie, just to kind of give a quick rundown of the movie, uh, opens up on a Northern village, mm-hmm. very, very Viking like culture. Yeah. Um, and primitive, small, um, area there's not you know Harsh these people are, yeah it's there's snow on the ground they're living there can't be more than 50 people living right. in this tiny little hamlet it's yeah. just basically a group of of dwellings that have been built and they have they're they're you know they they're working iron like there's his father's a blacksmith um and they have they have some minor industry but this is not a city in yeah, other words right. this is a small village that's isolated so and we are introduced to one of the main th- through threads of the entire film, which mm-hmm. is the Riddle of Steel. Yeah. Which I know you're going to want to talk about later, so yeah. we'll put a pin in that. Um, but the village is raided, everybody's killed, and the young Conan, uh, whose parents are killed in front of him, 
uh, is sort of sent off to slavery, mm-hmm. where he survives very harsh yeah. upbringing. The, all of the children, or many of the children, yes, they're all dead. They're no, they're captured. No, I'm Remember, saying. But they eventually, yeah, eventually yes. they all. That is helpful though for us to understand that Conan is uniquely strong. Yes, yeah, right? like even they, among his own people, he is unusual. He was, yeah, right, um, exactly. So, so they, yeah, there's there's like ten or twelve kids that are yeah. brought to that little slave camp, and he's mm-hmm. the only one who makes it. Yeah, so they put him on the wheel of. <laughs> What do they call that thing? I don't uh, remember what they call it. It seems it's like purposeless. the wheel of agony or yeah. something like that. I think it's supposed to be a, like a grain mill. Yeah, and they're they're pushing a millstone around, and it's just it's the least efficient right. device <laughs> that I've ever seen. Um, and so Conan survives it. Like you said, it yeah. tells us a lot about him. It's a really great uh, scene. Oh, it's a fantastic scene. Uh, it's it starts with all these kids pushing this wheel, and you know. There's, they're all on these spokes that are pushing this thing around in a circle, like internally. I guess they let them quit at a certain time of night and go to sleep and they get up and do it again the next day. They're chained to it. And, um, there's a clear time passaging of going on. Like he, he ages to a teenager and then he ages to a man. And every time the time passes, there's fewer there's people fewer, pushing yeah. it until at the end, he's the only he's one the who's still one. alive. Right. And, and he's super jacked. It. Yeah. Uh, and there's like a there's like a huge rut where he's just been walking just for been like walking. 15 years or yeah. something like that. Right. And so no explanation given as to how he achieved a perfect <laughs> symmetrical physique by pushing a wheel in a circle for an eternity, but whatever. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, and so he survives that ordeal, ends up getting um, purchased by a slave trader who puts him in a gladiatorial type yeah. setting. That's where he learns sort of the basics. Pit of fighting. fighting. Yeah. And uh, is eventually set turns free. Out he's, turns out he's got talent. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's trained. Uh, he's talented enough that he's taken and trained by like. Uh, men of the East. Like masters. Yeah. Um, and uh, so he's he's got a leg up. Yeah. At that point. Right. So like yeah. he shows promise. Mm-hmm. He shows some sort of natural uh, ability. He They recognize that. They get him trained up and he becomes sort of a professional fighter. And. Uh, he learns to read. He he learns. Yeah, he studies. Like, he becomes things, educated. Yeah. That's part of his training. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they don't really explain why. The sort of enigmatic, but his owner sets him free. Yeah, uh, I I always got the impression that the owner began to have an affection for him. Yeah, like he he kind of cared about him like he would care about a son. Right. And he was like, he's gonna die if we keep this up. So we've, I've got to let him go. The scene is is not really super clear on that um but there's that's emotion is the only reason why this sure. guy would let him go because he's clearly making him super rich by winning all these contests right um and uh i, I just kind of like to think that initially sure. conan is resistant to go right um, in that one scene and then he, he, he he's basically he gets, beaten away from him slapped like air bud yeah <laughs> <laughs> like go you dumb dog yeah i hate and, you uh so he runs away and sort of makes it to the city and um gets gets caught up with this thief uh and they wait a minute you skip the oh skip you're the... right you're right you're right i'm sorry i skipped <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you take the the weird witch scene <laughs> oh yeah well first we got to do the sword oh oh yeah crom yeah. so he so in running away this is when he's running away from the slave trader yes he uh is getting chased by dogs which actually i never i didn't understand that uh-huh. because the slave guys want to let him go why they're wolves they 
Oh, they're I just wild was, wolves. I think I messed that up. I yeah. thought they were like dogs that were hunting him because like he was an escaped combat. Well, I could be I could be wrong. And if we go back and watch it, it may be like, well, we don't have wolves. What do we have? We have a bunch of dogs. <laughs> the wolves are booked. They're doing a dog food commercial. Um, so they maybe they just had dogs. I'm pretty confident that it's probably that. It's probably yeah. like well, all we have on set are dogs. Yeah. Um, so we're but just I'm, gonna send dogs I, I thought they there. were supposed to be wild animals. I, I, I do think maybe now that I'm thinking about it, the connotations that they're because when he comes out of the cave with the sword, they're like all tame around him. So it probably is wild animals because it's like they recognize his ferocity as no, one no, of no. Them. You got that all wrong. You got that scene all wrong. I'm gonna do this scene. Okay, you do it. I'm gonna do this all right, scene. You do it. All right. So he's he's unarmed and he's still chained up. Right. He's been he's been released from basically the the chains that kept him at the camp but he was still manacled and stuff sure running away from these wild animals almost like he's uh, you know i've run as far as i can run i'm gonna take shelter on top of these rocks where they can't jump up and get me in the process of doing that he falls into a a catacomb of some kind some sort of construct and it looks like a tomb and there this is kind of the well, it's not really the introduction of religion in the movie. It's it's, it's a it's further really introduced in the very first scene. Yeah, because um, he says Krom is like under the earth. Or yeah, whatever. we we are introduced to Krom as the god of the Sumerians, um, who is a like a unemotional. He doesn't care about his people. He just sort of watches. Um, he is a god of of earth. He kind of reminds me of like a dwarven deity from like a Lord of the Rings setting. Um, or uh, like D and D, if you play D and D, like one of those dwarven gods. But um, he um, values strength and rewards strength, but he does not help you um, if you ask for help. He's like you're too weak. Um, sure. And so he's sort of the Aesop's Fables type god, where he helps those who help themselves. So Conan is in this tomb. Skipping ahead now to that to the scene where he's running from the wolves, and he's wearing basically rags. What he had on him when he escaped, and he's got chains on him while he's there he sees the throne of some king um or or some great person from of old that's been forgotten about and the this person has a sword in his hand uh bones nothing but bones there so he he takes the sword out and he picks it up and he kind of bangs on it with a rock and it turns out that it's still in perfect condition it was just kind of encrusted with like with like mildew tarnish yeah. or something and uh which I think is meant to imply that the sword is slightly more than normal. Yeah, right? I, I, that's the impression I got. It doesn't have any magical properties that are easy to, to discern. I got like but that it's, sort of like elven blade. Like yeah, it's, it's yeah. not magic. It's just really, really high, highly yeah. crafted. Like, Unusual. There's something about it. Yeah. It's blessed maybe by Krom, something sure. like that. And as he lifts the sword, the head of the man on the throne dips down right. as if bowing to Conan and then it falls off because it's just held on by cobwebs pretty much. But we're meant to see like this. It's, it's ambiguous as to whether or not this is like some sort of ghost or is there a supernatural thing going on? Or is this coincidental that he just picked this up and disturbed it and made the head drop. But it looks very much like the head is, is bowing to Conan when he picks up the sword. Music swells. He goes outside and sees the wolves and the next scene we see him walking comfortably wearing oh, right. wolf pelts. That's right. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. He definitely murks all those wolves for sure. And then he goes to some weird witch's cottage and she gives him a, an exposition plot point yeah. that he needs to move on. Yeah. His quest is revealed to us. 
at this point as well. That's the other big reveal in this scene. Besides that, the scene is just weird for weird's sake. Um, That he wants to find the standard bearers that killed his family. Right. He has decided to seek personal revenge. That's what he's going to do now that he's free. He has a weapon and skills. So he's looking for the standard of Falsa Doom. He doesn't know the name yet, but he knows that it's uh, two snakes that are joined in the middle facing each other. And she gives him some hints that are um, riddles. And then she turns into a witch and he throws her in the fireplace. (laughs) Uh, It's a weird scene. Uh, Then he goes outside and finds his buddy chained to the wall. And that becomes his his sidekick for a while. So you can go from there. Uh, They... uh, Sort of... there's There's a sort of a travel montage where we have the best... The best scene, and not the best scene, it's not the best scene, but one of the greatest moments in cinematic history, I'm sure, which is as they're walking down this alleyway full of prostitutes and degenerates, um, and what, insulting and what them, have you, insulting them. Um, and Conan, as he's sort of stumbling along, uh, bumps into a camel, and Arnold Schwarzenegger just turns around and just right hooks this camel right in the face and then the, and then the camera pans behind and everybody's got quiet and is just staring at them and he says come on let's get out of here to his buddy like we're done with this and then the camel just topples over <laughs> like he just one punched this camel uh and it's fantastic and if you watch the scene i'm pretty confident that arnold schwarzenegger punched that camel <laughs> Like, I don't think that it was like, cause the camel's reaction is like, you can tell that it, like it was jarred by an impact. And I'm not like saying that it's good to punch camels, which I, I really wouldn't recommend doing that because yeah, sure. <laughs> camels are huge. Obviously this one was, you know, uh, it was a camel that was for movie use. So like, it's probably accustomed to being around people. And it's possible also that Schwarzenegger screwed up and accidentally punched the camel when yeah. he was just supposed to throw a fake punch. Right. The camel may have moved. Who knows? I don't know. I would like to ask that question. <laughs> if I could ask Schwarzenegger one question, I'd be like, did you really punch that camel? Um, that scene, by the way, I didn't notice this the, the time. I, we watched this a while back, a while back and then yeah. we watched it again here recently to get ready for this. And I thought they were just drunk because they had they were in town. They had right. a little bit of money from something. and But it but I think that they were high on Black Lotus. Yes. Which there's a scene yes, immediately right before, before that, that where it's like, I got Black Lotus. You want some of this? Right. Which is that that comes up in Howard's writing as well. Okay. Uh, Black Lotus is a very dangerous flower, but it will put you to sleep if you encounter it in the wild. If you like sniff the flower, it will just knock you out. Um, but if you can refine it into into various things, and it's often used for like wizardry stuff. Gotcha. It's like an alchemy thing. And so in this case, it's it's turned into a... A substance yeah. that makes you high and punch camels. I guess. Yeah, and so. I think that was definitely the you get that from like is that the good stuff? You know or whatever yeah, he says. Yeah. And so um, they cut in this town. They find this snake tower. Yeah. And our our thief friend says, you know, it's, this be a great this be a great mm-hmm. thing to hit. And so they break into the tower. That's where they meet Valerian, Valerian, yeah. uh, who, who is, is also going to break into yeah, the tower. Yeah, who's in the process of breaking into the tower herself. And this is their first encounter with the cult snake clan. Yeah. The, uh, uh, the what is the cult name? of Set? Is that yes, right? that's right. Um, so, uh, which, can I just say, there's a really great line in, they, they're like asking people about the snake standard. And somebody's like, what? And for some reason, Schwarzenegger has not 
put two and two together on this. <laughs> Conan has not put You're two right. and two together on this. He's looking for a snake cult. <laughs> With a standard of two snakes facing each other. And there's an enormous tower. A massive tower. That's in the middle of this city that has snake heads all over it. And he's not like, we should go ask them. Yeah. <laughs> he has not connected um, those dots. And the guy's like, I don't know anything. But also, the, the guy he's talking to is equally stupid. Because he's, yeah. like, he's like, I don't know anything about that snake standard you're talking about. But I hate that massive snake statue. Yeah. They've just rolled into town and they've taken over. My favorite. This may be my favorite line in the movie. He goes... At first, I just thought they were just another snake cult. <laughs> and I'm like, how many snake cults do you have in this town? How often do snake cults come and set up shop here? Because you need to move. That's you need right. to go somewhere else. That is, you're right. That may be the best line in the whole movie. Um, That's fantastic. I don't know who wrote that line. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe that guy was just like, what should I say? I guess I'll just make something up. Anyway, the the point of the the point of the dialogue exchange is to say that um, this whoever built this tower is like serious. Right. They they have power. They're very mysterious. We they're taking over. Them. They've yeah. Become they a, have they've become a real player. They've put towers in all yeah. and all these cities around, yeah. and they're spreading. Right. And so that's what you're supposed to get from that. Yeah, it's sure. just it was kind of comedically done. Um, and so they break into the tower. Yeah. Um, they do find a bunch of jewels. Yes, they do. Uh, but also, there's a they 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 sort of stumble upon uh, an occult ceremony that's taking place. A giant snake comes out. Yeah, and deals with the giant snake. Pretty fun prop. Yeah, it's a great. That's a great mm-hmm. scene. Uh, well, outside of the nudity. Uh, oh yeah, that's scene. right. That, but should, yeah. I guess we should probably say that for our viewers. Yeah, this is an R-rated Conan, movie. This is R-rated film. Lots of lots of female nudity in the yeah. in the movie, but not as much as I remembered. Um, I kind of thought like, oh, it's just constant, but it's not as much as I as I remembered. Okay. Um, still, still, still a lot. Yeah. Um, I would I would describe it as a lot. Sure. But, uh, so anyway, so he yeah. so they have the run in with this cult. He 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 beats the snake. They end up stealing jewels. Mm-hmm. They go party, and he's kind of like, is this all there is? You know that he yeah. sort of has this moment with. It's another Larry. funny scene. Like they're partying it up, and then uh, <laughs> they basically you know they run out of money. Right. He has uh, Valeria and he are clearly like infatuated with one another. Right. Whether or not they're really in love is not clear yet, but they they are into each other big time. And, sure. and so they're they're palling around along right. with his other his other friend. And they've basically prodigaled away all of their savings. <laughs> and Schwarzenegger's <laughs> just falls asleep in a bowl of porridge. <laughs> and they're then they're caught up by the city guard. Yeah. Um and brought before uh, the the one referred to as the Usurper King, who may be the best actor in the whole movie. He is, yeah. He's fantastic. It's him or James Earl Jones. Yeah. Max von Sydow is the actor that he, plays him. He's great. Mm-hmm. And he sets them on a quest to retrieve his daughter from Tulsa Dude. And this is where we're first given his name. Yeah. And he, he's the guy who's the ringleader of this evil snake cult. Yeah. And he's taken his daughter and sort of seduced her with this evil yeah. religion. And he sort of he um, admires Conan because Conan seems to be the only one who's ever stood up to them and yeah. and survived. That that's really what he says is like nobody else even is attempted to do what you guys were able to successfully pull off. Right. And I know you're thieves. I'm gonna pay you and yeah. I'm gonna pay you as much as you can carry. This is not a this is not a like noble knight go save the princess and you can marry my daughter and have my kingdom. Right. This is a I'm paying you thieves to Bring her back and kill Thulsa Doom if you want. I don't really care. Right. Fortunately for Schwarzenegger, it lines up with his personal goals. Right. Valeria um, is like, let's not 
because we're not in the rescuing business. Right. We yeah. don't really want to go to war with these people. We just kind of want to do hit and runs from time to time. Let's just take the money that he's already given us and go. And uh, she wakes up the next morning with Conan gone, who has decided he's going to go by himself to, to deal with this. He doesn't yeah. want to bring them in. Um, so he does. He goes out there, finds them, runs into our wizard yes. friend, mm -hmm. yes. who kind of gives him some advice. And then, and then Conan tries to sneak in uh, by uh, ambushing a few of the pilgrims who are heading towards Thulsa Doom's uh, Mountain of Power. Yeah, Mountain of Power. Uh, which is a great set. Um, yeah. That they built somewhere in Spain. In Spain, yeah. uh, and um, he he kind of he steals uh, some like a priest robe, but he's immediately outed because he brought uh, an artifact that they stole from the tower. Right, and uh, they recognize that this is a stolen thing. Uh, I assume that's how they knew, and they pointed him out. He's captured. There's an there's a really good scene where. Uh, Conan is before Thulsa Doom. He's been beat up really badly, and James Earl Jones just puts on an acting class. Oh, dude, it's a great scene. Um, and uh, th which culminates in him just basically saying, "The you know, steel is nothing. Right. Real power is the power of flesh. Right. That's what he says. Yes. Now, this might be a good time to, to diverge to talk about the riddle of steel. Yeah, a let's bit. do it." All right, so in the Conan movie, one of the one of the through lines is the Riddle of Steel. So at the beginning of the movie, Conan's father, when Conan is still a child, is telling him he has forged this masterwork sword, um, which is in the movie surprisingly little. <laughs> <laughs> um, it has a cool like skull emblem on it, um, C-shaped cross piece, um, kind of broader at the base, tapers to a point, um, and. He's like, Krom gave the Riddle of Steel. And if you don't know the Riddle of Steel when you die, then you get cast into outer darkness and Krom laughs at you and makes right. you feel sad, I guess. And so um, the Riddle of Steel is that you can trust in steel. Like steel is what matters. You can't trust people right. because they'll fail you, but steel is what really matters. So Conan takes this philosophy and kind of puts his faith in steel and reinforced again by the finding of this magic sword. One of Thulsa Doom's goons takes Conan's father's sword after they rampage through the village, and that sword disappears from the movie for a while. So the sword Conan finds in the cave is the one that he uses pretty much the whole movie. Right. Um, and that belief is challenged by Thulsa Doom, who then says, steel is nothing. Watch this. And then he calls one of his cultists to just jump off a cliff and die. And he does. He's like, that's what power looks like. You don't get that from steel. I could order all these people to just die, and they would. Right. And that's what real power is. And so now Conan has two philosophies that are presented to him. One is trust in steel. The other one is trust in this other weird power that Tulsa Doom has. So he's got to kind of find his own way. What is the answer to the riddle of steel? Right. And um, he is taken from that from that place with James Earl Jones out and crucified on a tree. Right. Um, saved at the last minute by his friends who take him to the wizard's house and they do some magical rites to preserve him using the spirits that dwell in the ruins that the wizard kind of is the caretaker of. Being warned that those spirits will extract a high price. Right. That's Set right. up. Set up. Set up. Um, so just keep that in mind, viewer because it will return mm. or listener in this case. Um, 
Conan does survive. He he heals over a relatively short time, implying that the magic has worked. And this time, he takes his friends in with him. Yeah. They go they go with some super sweet uh, Siberian tiger camo they into the do. caves. <laughs> they just cut everyone to death. Oh, it's great, man. Um, there's a really good set action piece in there. Um, and they they capture the daughter. Tulsa Doom turns into a giant snake and leaves. And um, they just kill a bunch of people who need killing. And more is revealed about the cult as well. There's a surprising amount that you don't really notice. Like, you knew the cult was bad. Turns out they're cannibals. Right. Um, and weird mutants and like stuff like that. So they, they managed to get the daughter away. While they're escaping, Valeria is struck by a magical poison arrow that's made out of a snake fired by Thulsa Doom from a bow. Um, she does not survive. The spirits have extracted their price. Their price. So there's your payoff. Sort of, right? You're like, oh man, that's a bummer. Um, they set the the princess up on a rock because they know that Thulsa Doom's going to bring guys to get her back. Um, and uh, they just set an ambush. Um, and there's a big fight at the end. They have set. There's a montage of setting traps and all that stuff in these ruins. And uh, the wizard's like, the gods are excited about the battle. They will watch. And he's like will they help? And he says, no. And I think Conan says, well, to hell with them or something like that. Um, but, uh, so there's a big, there's a big battle. He gets his father's sword back. What happens to his father's sword though? It breaks. It breaks. Yeah. yeah. So now his, his perceptions of this riddle of steel are, are further challenged. Sure. Um, now his sword that he found has not broken, but, uh, you know sure so he's he's still trying to wriggle out what the riddle of steel is and um Thulsa doom escapes the daughter is saved almost all of his goons get killed if not all and then conan goes back to his mountain of power sneaks in again and uh while he's in the middle of one of his sermons he cuts his head off his shoulders <laughs> and hurls it down the hill <laughs> And all the cultists just leave. They just, yeah, douse um, their flames and go. And with with the death of Thulsa Doom, now Thulsa Doom's theory of what power really is, is now evaporating before your eyes as you watch because they're just putting their candles out and walking away. All right. So what is the riddle of steel? What is the answer to the riddle of steel? What is What is something that is so strong? And Conan has to sit there on the stairs and ponder it. And then he leaves. And guess what, viewer? They don't tell you the answer to the riddle to what the riddle of steel is. You have to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. So is that a fair plot synopsis? I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Conan's off to his next adventure. Yep. After that. Um, which he does have another film which is mediocre. Yeah. Um, Conan the Conqueror. So that was a lengthy plot synopsis, um, but I think it's important for people to get kind of like what's going on in this movie in order to understand how much how much more elevated it is as a piece of cinema than you would think. Sure, in my opinion. Sure. So, um, what I don't know. Tell me what you like about it. What you dislike about it. Well, so first of all, taking the when the film was made, um, it has a really good use of. Practical effects, props, yeah. and mm-hmm. CGI stuff. Um, I say CGI like you know motion capture yeah, or motion um, ca- uh, stop motion, stop motion, stop motion. Yeah. Um, um, 
so I, I really just enjoy um, it, the look of the film, the feel of the film. Um, you get a lot of different, very exotic um, settings, uh-huh. uh, a lot of really great prop builds uh, and set designs. Um, you mentioned the Mountain Power, mm-hmm. right? That's a really great place. Um, I'm sure there's force perspective with that um, to make it look way bigger than it is, than it really was. But sure. it looks huge. Yeah. Looks like a really impressive edifice. Yeah, so that's one thing. I mean, and I'm a big fan of um, sword and sorcery mm-hmm. style um, pieces of, of of art and cinema and stories and things. So you know, they they just do a good job. They just do a good job with that. And so that's that's I think that's something that I enjoyed. Schwarzenegger's tough. He's tough to to enjoy as an actor, right? He's just <laughs> not good. I like Schwarzenegger, uh, I- <laughs> but not because he's a good actor. Sure. Um, I mean, they they keep his dialogue mercifully short. Yeah, um, there's a kind of a famous story from behind the scenes on this. And if you're out there and you're a super fan, I, I could be remembering this slightly imprecisely, but be merciful. That when I think Dino De Laurentiis was the producer of this, let me see, I think his name's on the back here. Um, yeah, so he came to check on how the production was going, and Schwarzenegger. Couldn't speak hardly any English at the time. Certainly not fluent enough to like have a conversation. And so they were like, well, the the main actor has to say something when the producer's here. And so the scene that De Laurentiis observed was the scene where Conan is sitting on the table in like the Genghis Khan guy's house. And he's like, Conan, what is best in life? And they fed him his line like right before that. And he had to say... Um, annihilate your enemies yeah I, i'm i'm kicking myself that i can't remember exactly how it goes because it's a famous line yeah sure um to destroy your enemies see them driven before you and to hear the lamentation of their women oh, the way, that's i think right, is that's right. right that's right um and so he do, that's what the line was and he was like i don't know what this means you know but he just it was it's kind of like there's another kind of famous one from temple of doom actually speaking of that there's an actor in that it's like the, the shaman okay of the village who has the really, really thick accent, who's like telling them about the Shankara stones at the beginning of the movie when they first get to India. That dude didn't know English. They just found like this creepy looking Indian guy in this area and were like, they, I think they either wrote his lines phonetically in their alphabet or they had somebody off screen being like, tell him to go to Pankar Palace. And and so he was saying it, but he didn't. Or he had like, no idea. Yeah, he was repeating sounds, but right. he did not know what the words meant. And I think he got some direction about like what to do with his hands, but it was that was it. Um, so Schwarzenegger was basically like that level of English. Now, side note about Schwarzenegger, he was our super hard worker and wanted to be successful in Hollywood. And he took acting classes and he went to like accent coaching classes, which I guess never really paid off because <laughs> he still has an accent. But it got less, you know, it got he got to where he was more. Yeah, I think if you watch him in Terminator, right, and you watch him in Conan, yeah, I don't know what the time difference is between those two movies, but like Conan was eighty one, Terminator was eighty four. Yeah, there's a huge difference. Yeah, and um, like he's, I mean, he's can barely string a sentence together yeah. in Conan. Um, uh, now he's playing Conan, so I guess it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. But but yeah. Conan and Conan the character, I guess that's that maybe that's a, a shortcoming of the film. I don't. Maybe I'm being too harsh, but you know Conan 
from the short stories is very very intelligent and yeah. and, and the movies te- say that he gets an education right that he yeah. learns yeah which never goes anywhere never goes right, right. Yeah. but like i think what they're trying to do there mm-hmm. is to communicate that conan's not just a dumb brute yeah right that he's intelligent that mm-hmm. he's got some some gravitas right and some some savvy and that would be that that's a pretty minor example of maybe a setup that doesn't really pay off yeah sure like there's no point in the movie where he has to use his brain to overcome something yeah like he doesn't have to outsmart the the enemies the most you get is just the riddle of steel stuff yeah right like him struggling with Mm -hmm. what is it that i believe about the world which is like abstract concept of thought Mm -hmm. but like you're right he never has to like overcome a challenge not using his muscle he always uses his muscle yeah and so um i mean maybe setting traps i don't know that's kind of weak but yeah um, i guess so i mean it's it's clearly i mean you don't need the philosophy of whatever yeah. sun z or whatever yeah. he says right it's like yeah sun there was Zhu, some it was a really. ripoff yeah. yeah it's like sun Tzu, but not really <laughs> yeah. uh and so anyway it just you know uh I, that may be a shortcoming but uh i schwarzenhanger i he's good in the he's good as conan i mean he obviously looks the part and um it, it's not like terrible but mm-hmm. it, I, where it's terrible is where you put him on the same stage as james earl jones yeah right and because james earl jones is just He's just an elite actor, yeah. right? Um, just absolutely fantastic. And so I, I do think that that's kind of like a shortcoming in the sense that like your protagonist is is shadowed by your antagonist in ways that are just glaringly obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of which, that scene that you talked about um, is one that I would show uh, so many. Like if I were running like an acting class, mm-hmm. like that scene where James Earl Jones delivers that monologue mm-hmm. about like this is the power of flesh. Yeah, right. Is just that's how if I, if you want to watch a scene where a character just rips down, you know, your protagonist's worldview, just yeah. just pulls it apart at the seams. Yeah. Everything you think you know about the world is a lie. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's just so good. Like we physically um, have beaten you literally. Yeah. But also, like, I'm going to. I'm going to destroy what matters to you. Yeah. Um, and that is consistent with the way that that character is written because he's a trickster. He's a manipulator. He's a cult leader. Yeah. I mean, he's, that's a certain kind of person. You even get at the end. This It's so good. This mm-hmm. is good. This is, this is the kind of stuff that I would point to, to prove your point, which is that this isn't just a hack and slash adventure story that mm-hmm. like is totally thoughtless. Because at the very end of the film, yeah. James Earl Jones looks at Conan and he says, I'm your father. Yeah. Who else could I be? Yeah. It, I'm the you reason, would not exist yeah, except for I'm me. I'm the yeah. reason that you are who you are. Mm-hmm. And like he does this whole thing and it it's dark, but it's it is it's convincing. And convincing. Yeah. It's in, like he's a cult leader, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm like, this is why people jump off cliffs yes. and believe you is because and James Earl Jones delivers that performance. Yeah. He's very so believable well. in that role, yeah. Oh, it's he looks that, like it. He's looks super creepy. Yeah. he's just got a very unsettling appearance. The way that they did his hair and makeup um is just consistent with that. Like he just looks off. Yes. Just a little bit off, yeah. even just standing around. And then when he I mean, he's like Saruman, kind of. Like, the power of his voice yes. is what is dangerous about him. Yes. You know, when Conan shows up, he doesn't grab a battle axe and start fighting him. He uses his voice. Right. And that previously has been established as his greatest strength. Right. right? He's never been the guy who hit kills everyone with his own two hands. He sends others to do that. Sure. Because he can. Um, I think the only person that he kills... Well, he shoots Valeria with the arrow, which is a magical arrow. Um... I think he's the one who actually delivers the death blow to Conan's mother 
In yeah, the at the very beginning, when she's not defending herself, yes, he, he just like strikes her down. Strike, yeah, he does like that twirl spin and cuts yeah, her down. and that may Which, be by it. the way, that's a pretty rough scene. Yeah, she's holding her kid's hand and just her head, yeah, her decapitated head just yeah. falls to the ground. Um, um, but yeah, that's that's it. I think those are the only two times we see him kill, and it's yeah. he kills women both times. So yeah, so he's not he's that. not a warrior. Right. Um, he's he's something. I mean, different. he's a snake. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's, <clears> and. And Conan deals with him the Conan way, which is like, nah, it'll be fine. And then he hacks his head off. Um, in a, in a, and it's what you want. Sure. You know, as an audience member, you're like, kill him now. Right. Don't let him say anything else. He's going to trick you if you let him keep talking. And about the time you can't take it anymore as a, somebody sitting here watching it, Conan uses his father's broken sword to cut his head off. Yeah. His, fi- his real father's broken sword. Right. Not this guy, this pretender Not who's this trying usurper. to trick him. Yeah. And you just, there's stuff in this that you, you, you may not notice, but your brain is going to notice. And you're going to, you're going to walk away from it thinking like, man, that was pretty good. Now my wife thought it was boring. She didn't like it. There was a lot of stuff in it. She just didn't enjoy. Sure. Um, but, uh, which I think is fine. That's, but I don't. If you if you come to this movie thinking like I can't wait to watch Arnold Schwarzenegger just kill everyone, like you're going to be disappointed. Right. That's the thing. It's it. It has real thematic through threads. It, it has real setup and payoff. Mm-hmm. It has real um, like I think the movie's trying to communicate something universal, universally mm-hmm. applicable. Right. The the riddle of steel. Yeah. Is presented to us as like worldview struggles. Yeah. Worldview yeah. stuff. Right. Where do it's, I get my belief system does yeah. it come from your parents what happens if it fails your parents do you continue to believe that do you go your own way sure what is the role of your religion uh, how do you view god there's that great um, conversation between him and his uh buddy yeah the thief character yeah about the, the about, sky god yeah because he the, says i pray to the four winds yeah and he says crumb you know laughs at your at your god your puny god mm-hmm. right um and he says you know something to basically the effect of crom lives your god crom lives under the earth but my god rules the sky so mm-hmm. my god is better than your god yeah and like conan doesn't have a response he doesn't just, he just, just kind of shrugs yeah he just yeah. kind of shrugs but like that's another example like they continually set up the idea of what do you do when the world challenges your worldview and mm-hmm. like he he grows up they said, see, this is good. They set it up to this way. He grows up as a slave child who, for years, all he knows is his father's faith, mm-hmm. their death, and that stupid wheel that he yeah. has to push. Right? And, like, that's all he knows. Mm-hmm. And then he's thr- – the, the scene where he's first thrown into the slave pit's actually really well done. Yeah, he's confused. Because he's confused. Yeah. He has no idea what's going on. Nobody told him what was happening. Yeah, he's and no the other guy just comes and tries to kill him. comes to kill him. And mm-hmm. he survives just on instinct alone, yeah. right? And then, you know, so it really is – one of the one of the through threads of the whole film is, like, the childhood naivete mm-hmm. falling away as you learn as the world beats you and, and pummels yeah. you and, and throws all these different things at you. And what do you do with that? And, mm-hmm. and Conan, in many ways, in this film anyway, um, is a child who's learning to be a man and mm-hmm. see the world in a very complex, nuanced way and deciding like, what is it that I'm going to believe? And, and that it's all typified in James Earl Jones telling him, I am your father. How else could Mm -hmm. it be? I'm the reason that you exist. Yeah. And him basically saying, 
by cutting his head off, no. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you're right. It is. There's a lot. I think if you if you wanted to view this movie as just a simple sword and sorcery film, you might be able to get away with it. You could you could turn your brain off enough mm-hmm. where like you could just appreciate the scenes where he's killing stuff yeah. and there's enough. Yeah. You know, in mundane nudity. terms, like it 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 has enough action beats. It, you know what's happening all the time. You're never just like lost, wondering what's going to happen next right. or what the goals of the characters are. Like you know what people are trying to do, what they're up against. They fight. There's bad guys. They kill. There's some magic and monsters and stuff like that. So there's enough of those kinds of things. But but there's there's so much more under the surface. Yeah. And 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 it's it honestly is composed well, mm-hmm. right? Like I think a lot of movies. It's just so odd because you don't expect it when you're watching it, but it's really composed well to slowly peel back the layers on what is it that our protagonist believes and how is he being challenged in all these different ways. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I agree. I think it's it's a lot more complex than most people probably give it credit for. Yeah. So let's talk about my biggest shortcoming with the movie is that it's inconsistent with the Conan character as he's presented to us in the stories. Now this is an origin story and we don't have an origin story uh, in the books. Uh, Conan is fully formed the first time we meet him. And as far as I know, Howard never wrote an origin story for him. Um, But there are things that are mentioned. And so what we know about him is that he's from Samaria. He was raised a barbarian. He's been fighting all his life. He Samaria is a rocky, hilly, Northern kind of cold area. And, his father was a blacksmith. I think that's the only thing that we know about his like family. Hmm. His mother, was he born on the battlefield? That sounds right. Am I thinking of the right character? I think that might be Conan. It's somebody like that. I think it's Conan where his mother was pregnant and they went into battle and she went into labor during battle and delivered him on a battlefield. So that's, that's all that stuff. Now contrast that with the origin story we have here. He's, a slave like most of his life. And so you don't really get the barbarian origins. And I think that's a shortcoming. It works really well inside the context of the movie, but it's inconsistent with Howard's presentation of the character. And then Schwarzenegger's performance, I think is the other thing that, that deflates Conan's intellect. Yeah. Um, His, his natural kind of mental agility where he's, he would be more like, um, I'm trying to think of a character that people would recognize that's intelligent. So like he would probably be more like a Captain America type personality where he's not as smart as Tony Stark. Like he's not a genius, but he's smarter than Thor. Right. Like he's got the tactical brain and he can kind of anticipate what his enemies are going to do. Like he's kind of in the, in that realm where he, he is going to outsmart the bad guy. Probably. And if he can't, then he'll just muscle his way through. Like a lot of times his brain is first and he falls back on his fighting skill as a secondary thing. Yeah. Master tracker because of his upbringing in the wilderness. We don't have any of that stuff in this movie, but the role, the role of tracker is his buddy's role. Um, the, the Mongolian guy who's with him. Is it fair to say that the movie Conan is a caricature of that of Howard's of, of yeah. Howard's is that too harsh? Is that? Uh, I would say that 
I would say that his character is an expedient. Uh, and, okay. and the reason why I would say that is because they cast somebody who mm. probably didn't have the horsepower as far as an actor to go to be able to present all that in a way that doesn't turn him into a Gary Lou. Right. Um, Conan has faults. Like he's not, he's not faultless in the stories, but um, I don't know. That would be tricky to uh, Mary Sue is a character who has no faults. Right. Um, Gary Lou is the male version of the same thing. Right. And so like Ray Skywalker, gag um ray palpatine whatever she doesn't have any faults she's always nice she's never and so as as a result she's bland she's like the the act the character version of ramen noodles kind of except right. with no salt and um they didn't want that clearly so one of the the faults that this character has is naivety uh because he is not world wise in spite of the fact that he's been educated kind of in book smarts he's raised as a slave has no memories of freedom except as a child of as maybe as old as 10. And he's kind of got to feel his way through the world. And he's got, you know, guides that are a little dubious, like his friends and stuff like that. So that's a part of what they wanted to do, but sure. it's, it's not consistent with the, with the, the Howard character. And I would like to see a version of that character done. Um, there's been some talk of, maybe a streaming service picking up Conan. I don't know where that is. I, I would be shocked if they could do it because of how toxic his masculinity is. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, that would be my, my critique. Um, I don't really, I don't really have a lot of stuff about the movie that I don't like. Um, uh, nudity never is an ad, uh, an ad to a movie. Like it never helps in any way. Sure. Um, it, it really can only, detract in my opinion so that could could go without that there's really no need for it but they were going for an r rating they wanted this to movie to be a kind of movie that when you bought a ticket and went and sat down you were you, you knew you were serious like this wasn't a kid's film contrasted with the sequel which they went for a pg rating i don't know if pg-13 existed at the time but they they toned all that down there's no nudity in it the action is much more subdued um the plot itself feels less mature it's not as good um but uh, it's probably because of the writing yeah. more than anything else. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's really the only critique that I have um, that's worth noting much. Um, but yeah, highly recommend. So, what do you think the answer is to the riddle? Of oh, steel? to the to the riddle of steel. Yeah. Well, do I? I tell you what. Should we get, do that? I, let me go first. Okay. Let me go first. And I then wonder if our audience you, should just be like, oh well, we could, yeah, we could, <laughs> we could just leave it. We could leave. No, it I kind of want to. I want to say my theory. I want to yeah. hear yours too. So okay, so I think that the riddle of steel. <sighs> See now, I feel like I'm on the spot. Now, <laughs> I brought it up. I I think that the riddle of steel is the str- the strength to. Uh, forge your own destiny, right? Is okay. like 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 the like mental phys- and physical fortitude to forge your own destiny is what uh, like is what steel is supposed to typify, right? Okay. And so I like I would point to like you know he, Conan's physically strong. That's that's very clear, um, and he survives and and overcomes every obstacle physically but then through all of the challenges to his worldview he ends up sort of 
forging his own path to say, like, you know, the the power of flesh is not equal to the power of steel because I will it so. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's very much like, um, you know, I don't want to say, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of a thing, but, like, like, like bend the world to your will, right? And you yeah. will, and you will be successful, right? Um, and so I, th- I, you know, and so I think that that, and it's like sort of the process of forging steel, right? It's bending, mm-hmm. taking this, this thing, hammering and, the weakness ham- out, yeah, hammering the weakness out through through trial by fire, trial by fire, yeah, yeah exactly. So I, that's what I would something. I don't, I'm not really articulating it well, but. Something along those lines, I think, is the rule mm-hmm. of steel. Yeah, so I, I think that I'm, I'm on the same track. Um, I would say that if you're talking about, like, what is the strongest thing and what is the thing that that can most be trusted, then, and this is an atheistic world view. Atheistic, maybe not. Maybe that's too strong a term, agnostic. The movie opens with a quote from Nietzsche, which is... Oh, you're right. Um, oh, what is the exact quote? What doesn't... Uh... I don't want. I don't want. I don't want to get it wrong. Um, uh, what, what is, is it? What doesn't kill you does just makes ma- you stronger. Makes you stronger. Something to so that effect. I, that's. I, I was afraid that I'd be paraphrasing it. You yeah. said you wanted to get it exact. It's yeah, definitely to check it real quick. to the effect of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. Um, Let's see. Yeah, Nietzsche. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, comes from the. Let's see if I can get the exact aphorism here. Uh, has been translated. Well, that is not helpful. Uh, okay. Out of life, school of war, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And it was just what doesn't kill me makes me stronger is what appeared at the, uh, the beginning of that movie. Right. So the, that's, that's the biggest hint, I think, at what the writer, John Milius, wanted you to think the riddle of steel was the answer to the riddle of steel was what is the thing which is strong? What is the thing which you can place your trust in? It is yourself. It is your own will to forge your own destiny. Yeah. Your weapons will fail. Get new weapons. Who cares? Flesh may fail. You don't need them. You just need to keep going after what you want. And Conan kind of illustrates that by like pursuing his goals to the end. Yeah. And to your point about like the atheist piece, like, gods also will fail you yeah in crom is not not going to help yeah crom mm-hmm. is and you don't need him furthermore because right. like towards the end of the movie they're you know he's wondering if maybe crom will finally come through for him and and it's kind of implied that he probably won't and he's like fine i don't care i, I don't need him like i've already proven that i don't need crom's help right and um and that's that's meant to be kind of a hurrah moment for us as an audience like conan's now standing on his own two feet right no longer needs his father's legacy no longer needs his uh his god his um his god that doesn't care about him and like he doesn't have to lean back on that um he's not at this point he's not even really out for revenge like because this that scene he's trying to save the girl and so yeah, I th- I think that's probably what he means. But I really love that the movie, and this is certainly open for debate because the movie doesn't say yes what the answer not. is. It does not. You never get that moment. There's a time at the end of the movie where Schwarzenegger is sitting on the steps. Everyone is gone except for the girl that he has saved, who has finally kind of broken free, and she's waiting on him to escort her back to her father's house. Um, and uh, 
she's just kind of patiently waiting and he's sitting on the steps and it's probably the best acting that he does in the whole movie because he just looks like pensive and sort of doubtful. Yeah. And I, it doesn't even say that he's thinking about the riddle of steel at that point. Like there's no lines of dialogue or anything like that. He's just sitting there having accomplished his mission. And now he's like, what do I do now? Right. And I think he's thinking about the riddle of steel. And I think that the answer is I have forged my own destiny. Yeah. And I have become my own man. Sure. And the man who was here who tried to establish that he was superior to me and sort of my author and maker, this this cult leader, I've just killed him. My own real father is dead. And my gods never helped. So it's just up to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I couldn't. I think that's articulated well. I think that is at least what the movie presents to us as this is their answer to the riddle of steel. But like mm-hmm. you said, it, you know, it's up for debate and, you know, it's like, did, did you could make the argument like, well, Crom never came through. Well, it was his insistence on, on being strong. Yeah. Right. Which came from Crom that mm-hmm. sort of put him in a position. So like, did Crom come through for him? Maybe mm-hmm. he did. Right. Yeah. And so like, it's like the boy named Sue song. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, I, it's fun. It's fun. It's a fun thing to to kind of talk about. Yeah. So, it's surprisingly deep um, topic of conversation. That's the reason why we did it here. We we probably won't do a whole lot of brain dead action films sure. because we just aren't. What are you going to talk about for two hours? Right. You know, when you've got to talk about like Independence Day or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and there's nothing really wrong with those. I like them and watch them. And uh, but. This one is one that I, I feel like gets a bad rap. And I think probably Schwarzenegger's presence is part of that. But also, one thing that should be noted is that there was a an army of, of fake Conan movies. A lot of B-movies came out. that, uh, And then and there was some, some real studio films that came out that were designed to capitalize on the success of this kind of uh, instant fad. Where Conan was not very expensive to make. It made a lot of money. And everyone was like, well, let's just, let's go out to some desert somewhere and wander around and have a wizard show up and we'll be, you know, we can make a million dollars. Right. Um, didn't work for a lot of them. And, and I can't help but wonder if the formula was misunderstood. Mm-hmm. If they thought, well, all we need is a jacked guy and some violence and we'll be able to sell tickets. And maybe that did work in, in selling tickets terms. But this movie transcends that, I think. Sure. Like, it's more of a... I don't know if I would go so far as to call it cinematic art, but it's definitely substantial. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that it, there's enough there to point to evidence-wise to say that it's trying to do more than just entertain. Yeah. It's trying to challenge. It's trying to present questions. Um, of course, this, this isn't set up and payoff kind of stuff, but more thematically just, you know present present questions about mm. about how, how we view the world and how we interact and how we overcome and you know what do you do when um your worldview is challenged how do you how yeah. do you handle that and uh it it in a way that is very satisfying from a plot perspective and from a thematics perspective doesn't answer all those questions yeah which by the way is not an easy thing to do well it perfectly well fits with the movie yeah right if the movie is like you got to find your own way and then it had the gall to just straight up <laughs> tell, tell you the answer without making you, I mean, it's like 40 chess with this movie. Like sure. you, you know, the theme is find your own way, answer your own questions, come to these conclusions, 
and like struggle and think and work and ponder and have conversations with your friends and come to a conclusion on your own. Stop making everyone else do it for you. Resilience. Right. I mean, this is something that is grossly missing, you know, in modern, in modern philosophy where it's like, um, take responsibility and come up with your own theory. Yeah. And then, and the movie makes you do that in real life. You have to think about like, what is the riddle? I mean, assuming you care and you may not, but like if you paid attention and you were like, what they never really said what that was. <laughs> it, it couldn't be the sword because the sword broke. What about the other guy? We, uh, it's gotta be, I don't know what the answer is. Somebody right. tell me the answer. Ah, where's the behind the scenes director commentary with the answer. Um, and there's just, that just doesn't exist. You just yeah. gotta come up with it on your own. So, I just I, I I highly recommend the movie. Yeah, and uh, yeah. if you whether you like the movie or not, I really recommend the books. Um, I've enjoyed them immensely. Howard is is an incredibly talented writer. Um, his ability to create atmosphere um, in the, in the span of a few sentences is just wonderful. Um, you feel like you're there. Um, you're you're in a jungle and you can barely breathe from the from the humidity and you're just sitting in your living room reading this story and, sure. um, and give you keep some of them will keep you awake at night. Like he's got a really good grasp of horror and how to write it. And uh, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of what my favorite one was of the ones that I read one that stood out beyond the black river is a really good one. Um, and I really like that one partially because it isn't about it isn't uh, directly Conan's story. And there's a couple of those. There's there's a couple of them where it's like uh, there's a few that have women are the POV character. Um, there's one really fun one. And it's a shorter one where um, Conan goes in, is in a town. And on the edge of town, there's a bunch of cannibals. And uh, they will sneak into town at night and take people and eat them. And so nobody slept outside, like not even beggars would sleep outside. Like everybody had to find a place to get like hidden and stuff because these guys were wandering through town. And so Conan went to this hotel and he found uh, through his kind of normal paranoia that this this innkeeper was being paid by the cannibals to like unlock the side door to the building so they could come and take people out of his inn. So Conan you know, turn gets the drop on him and kills some cannibals. And then he happens to see a woman running around outside. He's like, what is that? What's going on there? So he f- comes up and helps her. Cannibals had been trying to kill her. Um, she gives him a story that she's like a dancing girl who her lover is imprisoned by some evil priest and they go get like a magic ring to free him from some spell or something like that. And, um, uh, in exchange, Conan, it's implied, it's not said, but it, the, her payment is that she's going to sleep with Conan. That's the implication. And so you're kind of like, oh, come on, Conan. <laughs> That's pretty sleazy. And um, so the ring, I think, uh, makes any woman fall in love or any person of the opposite sex fall in love with you. If you have it and you activate the spell, you can like control it, I think. So... Um, They've got to get the ring away and bring an antidote to her lover. So um, turns out that her lover is the like prince and she is the queen. And she did not reveal her identity because she didn't want 
like Conan to use it against her. So she's like, well, I saw it. And, you know, obviously I can't sleep with you because that's, you know, that would be against the law. And so she's like, here's a big sack of gold. Show up tomorrow. You're going to be the captain of, of my guard. And then the concluding scene is Conan riding away. And he had pickpocketed the ring, <laughs> taken the gold, and it's revealed to us that he knew the whole time that she was the queen, and that like he always—it's like Batman, like he's always a step ahead. Sure. And uh, but the story is kind of told from her perspective, uh, or a lot of it is, and so I just—he's—he's he's great. Uh, yeah. Each story is is very different from the last. There's elements and pieces that are fun and borrowed and put in the movies. Um, but uh, some of them are spooky, some of them are just adventurous, some of them are funny. Um, he's just all over the place. Yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. It's a great character, great world, and it's very enjoyable. All right, man. What do you think? I guess it's time to wrap up. You want to you wanna make a, <sighs> a pitch for which one's better? Is that what we do now? Usually it's what we do now. All right. Um, oh, boy, this is... Well, okay. I'm going to have to go with the books. Yeah. Um, and it's partially just because there's so many of them that like, there's something for everybody. You're going to find one of these stories that you love. And, uh, there's just, I mean, you almost can't run out because they're still writing them. Um, people with, with real talent are still writing them names you've heard of. I mean, Robert Jordan, well, he, he isn't anymore cause he's passed away, but this is the guy who wrote most of the wheel of time. Yeah, books, wheel of time. And so he's written a lot of them. There's Elsprog to camp. It's another, kind of sci-fi royalty guy. Um, but there's several that you can find and, uh, they're, they're all over used bookstores because they're just in printed in large numbers and read and they're not the kind of books that you keep forever. You know, they're just, a lot of times they're just mass market paperbacks and they're fun adventures and that's the way they should be. Sure. They're, they're perfect in that, in that vein. So I'm gonna have to go with the book, but I just cannot recommend highly enough, particularly for men to watch Conan, if you're um, one of our one of our high school audience, sorry <laughs> about your luck, but you're not going to be able to watch Conan right yeah, now. Not yet. Not your parents yet. are not going to give you the thumbs up for that. But um, uh, uh, you know, I, if there was a way to remove the nudity, it would be very helpful uh, to the movie. I think. But yeah. um, as it is, uh, the movie is a is a very good movie. It's very well written. John Milius is the director and the writer. He wrote it in conjunction with Oliver Stone. It's a name that some people would know. Milius also wrote Apocalypse Now, which mm-hmm. we'll probably do at some point. Yeah. Um and some other things that you've probably heard of. Yeah. So. But uh how about you? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to jump on your bandwagon there and go and go book. Yeah. Um there I didn't read nearly as many as you did. Um and I know Conan kind of has a special place in your uh, heart as far as just great reading and uh, but I just, I love his style I love the short story I love I like the way that the stories are presented and that they're each one is sort of unique and self-contained and creates a mythos like Conan has sort of become this legend mm-hmm. um, and uh, each story has like builds on that legend and it's gotten to the place now where like other authors have picked up the mantle and like, mm-hmm. like you were just talking about, I just think Conan's a really unique, um, and special character. And, uh, I really like the, the, the way that, um, Howard introduced him, introduced him to us. And, uh, like you said, his, his, his storytelling is, is really easily consumed. There's a lot of layers. Um, yeah, I just I just really enjoyed 
enjoyed reading it. But which is not to take away from the film, of course. I think I think the film is subtly um, much more complicated than most people would probably think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it will it will cause you to think. It will and will cause you to if you take the time to think about what's going on. Um, can really be an enjoyable experience. So, yeah, going in's good. All right. Well, we're getting down to the end here. Um, if you stuck with us this long, congratulations. So we've got last thing I think is what are we going to do next time? Next time we get together, we have a plan. We do. Already. And it's uh, we're not exactly sure what the book plan is, but the movie we're going to do for sure is Master and Commander. Yes. Colon the Far Side of the World. <laughs> which is the subtitle of the movie. So this is a Russell Crowe. It's one of the last historical epics from before, like, I don't know. I mean, you don't see those much anymore. Sure, Um, sure. 2003, I think, if I remember right. Um, So it's a a sort of a golden age of sail, Napoleonic Wars, um, British Navy thing. Which I'm a fan of. I like. I've already mentioned the Hornblower books on this episode. That's the setting for those as well. And uh, there's a whole lot of books. There's at least twenty. I think there's twenty books uh, by Patrick O'Brien who wrote the stories that the movie is based on. And we're gonna pick one or two of those and and read them. Yeah. And then we'll come to come to the discussion. Um, if you need to pick up one of those books, there are some in stock at your local Walls of Books. Um, check them out if you have a Walls of Books near you. If you don't have a Walls of Books near you, find another indie bookstore and check them out. Yes. And if they don't have it sitting on the shelf, go ask the guy at the register if they can order it because they probably can. Um, get it in a couple of days. Check that out. So uh, we got a Walls of Books here in Cookville. You should come and visit it. If you're passing through, say hi. And uh, if you're looking for something to do um, <laughs> when you're done at the bookstore – Take your family over to the table board game lounge, which you can find on, is it Spring Street or Highway 70 right there? It's Highway 70. All right. On Highway 70. You'll find it. The table board game lounge in Cookville, which is one of the coolest places in town to, to uh, spend some time. How many games uh, we're are four, in the building? Over 400 now. Okay. And There's, we just started retailing board games. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're going to start selling them too. All right. So when you are in need of a board game, yeah. go and check them out. Yeah. Walls of Books has a couple of games too, but I bet that you're going to probably have more. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of our thing. Yeah. Um, I would anticipate that. So, uh, yeah, come and check them out. Games for all ages, including some recent acquisitions yeah. for the youngest of ages. Yes. Down to preschool age. So um, even kids who can't. Uh, read will be able to enjoy some things so uh, check out our sister podcast pop culture quorum deo um they are if you're into movies they are also uh into movies they will chat about movies they don't really talk about books much but uh they are a good podcast what am i missing what else should we who else should we be giving mad props to servants and heralds yeah check out uh, servantsandheralds.com uh where you can find some written stuff by us and others of like mind uh, it is a place for um christians to go and take the gloves off a little bit um and throw punches yeah. to the left um so it's uh, pretty interesting stuff um you will enjoy it if you go if you go there to check it out um i feel like i'm still missing something nothing comes to mind nothing comes to mind uh well then i guess we'll stop right. before we have too much dead air 
Um, but we'll, we'll be signing off. I am co-host Terry. I'm co-host Joe. And this has been Script View Manuscript. Thank you.